Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 104 of Through the Years, the podcast that reviews Ring of Honor show by show from the beginning. My name is Trevor Dane, joined as always by the co-host, Matt Feuerstein. And um, I guess we should just, no banter, we should just get to it because I kind of don't feel like bantering. So I am sure everyone that's listening to Through the Years knows by now that um, between the last episode of the show and this one, uh, Jay Briscoe has uh, passed away. He died in a car, just in case you didn't know. I don't know how that would be possible if you're listening to this show, but uh, he passed away in a car accident. His Two of his daughters were badly hurt, but they seem to be – they're going to pull through. Um, another woman who was in the other vehicle passed away, obviously. That is also horrible. And, uh, yeah, I always say when, uh, when a wrestler dies in the world of Ring of Honor that – you know, the nice thing about Through the Years is we don't have to do this very often compared to, I think, a lot of wrestling podcasts because we're dealing with younger younger people and maybe people that were not as big into the uh, the steroid culture of the 80s and some of the things that could come up with that. And, uh, yeah, we've dealt with Jimmy Rave and Xavier and Brody Lee. And obviously this one is kind of its own thing because it's nothing seems more random than, than a car accident and you know it's something that literally could happen to any of us and it's just horrible and there's a lot we can say about Jay Briscoe I'm sure we will but I think I guess the first thing I would just start off with Matt is to me just thinking about like what is Jay Briscoe's place as a wrestler like what's his legacy the the thing I was thinking about is if I was going to do like the proverbial Mount Rushmore of Ring of Honor you know like the four heads that best represent that company, just generically what comes to my mind first without even like special qualifications. I feel like there's three that have to be there. I feel like Brian Danielson has to be there. Samoa Joe has to be there. And if I could squeeze them into the, into one head, because I, I'm, I'm selfish, man. I want, I want five heads actually on my Mount Rushmore. The Briscoes would have to be there. And I feel like, like when I, whenever I think in my head about who would be like the fifth, I can cut with a whole bunch of names like CM Punk, Low Key, Homicide, more modern. Names. I can I come up with a million names, but it's like they're all debates to me. And those three, or I guess four, are so clearly far and away like so strongly important to the foundations of Ring of Honor and like to the what I think are the best parts of Ring of Honor. It's not even close. Like it's those those guys. And then everyone else can be a debate to fight out for that last spot. And I mean, what can you say about a guy who he was there from the very start? He was literally, you know, if you don't want, if you want to, as we all would like to forget about the, uh, um, the, the hit squad versus Christopher street connection match and consider a amazing red versus Jay Briscoe, the first official real ring of honor match in history as Gabe's policy talked about on Twitter this week that he considers that, um, you know, he was, the Briscoes were there for the very first match in ring of honor. They were there through every single ownership group from, um, Rob Feinstein through Kerry Silken through, um, Sinclair to now Tony Khan even. And, uh, 20 years and it's insane that he's gone Matt. uh yeah uh, so uh hello everyone and i um i'm sure that you can agree with me that this has been a very tough week to be a wrestling fan to be a roh fan um i i think 
you know, I would go one further from what you said. You were talking about, you know, how the Mount Rushmore of Ring of Honor, it's Danielson, Joe, and the Briscoes, and then, like, everyone else is distant, you know, next. I would say, even among that group, the Briscoes is, the Briscoes are the first people on that mountain, and everyone else is distantly behind them. Um, I mean, I don't think any, I, I don't think a single person would argue that, that the Briscoes would be, if you're talking about, you know, on the ROH Hall of Fame, which now exists, um, at least in, uh, you know, in name, um, if not in physical location or an actual physical, you know, Mount Rushmore type of situation with, with ROH, the Briscoes are number one, like on that list. They've been there since the beginning. They've been there till the most recent shows. They've been, uh, huge stars the whole time. They've been excellent the whole time. There's really no, I mean, you can't have watched ROH and not agree with that. And, um, you know, just that alone is, you know, obviously a major accolade, but I think if we're going to talk about the legacy of the Briscoes, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into now, I mean, I think it goes far beyond just that. It goes far beyond just Ring of Honor, even though they are synonymous with Ring of Honor. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cause uh, obviously we go beyond Ring of Honor. Um, they, they're an all time tag team. I would say, you know, you, you could make the argument they're one of the greatest tag teams of all time. And I think you could make an even if, stronger if say, argument. If you say one of, I, I don't even think you could make an argument against it. Like if, if you're saying one of, I was trying to make the argument to you earlier in the week that they are the greatest of all time. And obviously that one's a little bit tougher because there's lots of metrics, but like. One of the greatest taxis of all time. Again, again, I don't think you'll find a single person who's watched them that would say otherwise. You know? Yeah. Um. Absolutely. I, I think, especially our listeners, will be. I, I'm sure if we had a if we had an audience that was if we were doing a more general wrestling podcast, a podcast that wasn't just focused on old Ring of Honor and drawing to those kind of listeners, we'd we'd get some pushback maybe. But I on what I'm about to say, which I, is, I don't agree. But go ahead. Well, no, you. Matt, trust me, you, you haven't been out into the dark corners of the internet. You, you don't know what people say. I think there was a Ringer podcast this week when they were talking about the Briscoe. Someone, I didn't hear it, but I was reading people talking about it. We're saying that, um, someone was saying like, like they were talking about the Briscoes and trying to give a eulogy and clearly they didn't know about them. So they were like, yeah, the Briscoe style was just too hot for TV. Like, right, oh, right, God. right. I'm referring <laughs> but, um, to, anyway. I, right. And I qualify people who have watched the Briscoes, right? No, I'm not counting people that have not ever seen them, obviously. But yes, no, I get what you're saying. But, but I think one thing that's really hard to to even come close to the being is, you know, to me, the only team that has an argument against them for being a better tag team of the last 20 years, basically since the turn of the millennium, is depending on what you want to qualify, maybe the Young Bucks. But like, to me... You know, and I know, some, again, some people would say, like, you know, the, I'm sure WWE fans would say, oh, the Usos, the New Day, I'm sure some fans might say, it's like the Lucha Bros. I'm sorry, like, there's no team that has been that consistent and that good. I mean, not even in the last 20 years, but in period, how many tag teams have a 20 year run of that level of quality? Like, I know people on other podcasts, I think like the Voices of Wrestling guys maybe mentioned this, like, people talk about how great the, the Midnight Express were. Well, them, and they were one of the greatest of all ta- time taggings. But their run, when you really look at it, was relative, especially if you like split each pairing, was relatively short. The Briscoes basically come on the scene at like 16, 17. They're good pretty much immediately almost. I mean, they're having matches that are getting like critical raves, you know, at 17. And they're good till, you know, 
this year, like till their late thirties, like that's a, and they never stop. Not like, good. That's not, an not good. Incredible run. Not good, Trevor. They're excellent the entire time. Um, and I, um, you know, as far as the Bucks, you know, and I'm a fan of theirs. Um, and you know, if somebody wants to prefer their style of wrestling and their matches, I think that's valid and fine. Um, I don't see how anyone though could. There's two things that I think put the Briscoes to me clearly above the Bucks. One is the longevity. You know, the the Briscoes have just been doing it for, you know, like six or seven years longer. And then there's the fact the the promos. You know, the Bucks. You know, they yeah. developed their characters over the years. I don't think. Anyone would make the argument that the young bucks are like excellent promos. They've they've done some fine ones. They're not they're not bad promos. They again they've they've developed into interesting characters at times. Um, but the Briscoes, Jay Briscoe in particular, but both of them became excellent promos, fantastic characters, super memorable classic wrestling characters, and this is on top of being great in-ring workers and having fantastic matches throughout multiple decades. Um, and I think that's what, to me, makes them stand out as being the greatest. Um, certainly the greatest of the 21st century. And if you're willing to look past the fact that they never really got to be stars on a really, really, really major stage, if you're willing to look past that, which I understand if you're not, um, they, to me, that's why I would put them in the running for greatest ever. And yet the promo thing is a great point in the sense of I've seen so many people online, like the things they're raving about the Briscoes were the promos. And and it's, it's crazy because they spent so many years where like, I mean, we haven't gotten to the part yet of the Briscoes career and we've been rewatching their matches for a period of literal years, both in the timeline and our real lives. Like we haven't gotten to the point where they've really become the Briscoes. Like the personalities come out a little more, but we haven't gotten to that point yet. You know, there was a time where the Briscoes were just known for being a great in-ring team. And to some people nowadays, you know, for years now, the draw hasn't even been the, than the matches. It's been the characters. It's been the promos. And, you know, that's a huge part of their cap too, where they got wrestling pretty much immediately. And some people never get the personalities. And instead, not only did they get better at the personalities, it became as big a strength as anything else, as anything in the ring they did, which... Yeah, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's. I was going to make a similar oh, point. Like, yeah, so we we the era that we have watched, you know, right now, the era that we're reviewing right now, this like midpoint of two thousand six, that's when the Briscoes start to develop into characters. Um, you know, Jay, you've seen a little bit. His promos have gotten a little bit better already. Um, by the middle of the year, they're starting to say "man up," which is you know becomes a catchphrase. It follows them along to to the end. Um, and by two thousand seven. They become pretty de- pretty decent promos, but like they consistently get better as promos. And by the 2010s, they become these just incredible characters, these legendary. Re- I said this, but like legendary wrestling characters. Just you could put them in any era of wrestling, and they would be. Sorry, I sneezed there. Um, they would be superstars <laughs> um, in any era of wrestling, and you know I think that is something that maybe we wouldn't have seen coming. 15, 16, 17 years ago, the era that we were reviewing, like you said, they were absolute prodigies in the ring immediately. And they developed, and we get to watch them develop, and we're going to continue to get to watch them develop as we do this show, into these incredible all-around performers, 
characters, just, you know, just in, absolutely fantastic in every facet of wrestling. And I think it's, you know, it's been really joyous to watch and it's, you know, really painful to, you know, I think it's going to be a little bit painful going forward. Obviously, time is going to pass and will, you know, it'll get easier and easier as it, you know, it does, but it's still going to be painful to realize, you know, what, as we watch them develop into, you know, one of the great acts in wrestling of the 21st century, like I said. Um, but yeah, I, I, I mean, it's, they, they are, um, I mean, Jay in particular was already having incredible singles matches by the time he was, what, 20? Right? So I don't want to, you know, the tag team is obviously the big thing, but Jay was a great wrestler on his own very, very quickly. And Jay and Mark were having incredible singles matches against each other. I mean, didn't you put Jay versus Mark from 2002 ROH as like your number two match of the year in 2002? Maybe number three? It was my number three match. Number three was, I looked it up just to make sure. I put only below the three-way from Era of Honor Begins, the first main event, and Daniel American Dragon versus Low Key from Round Robin Challenge. And yeah. third was, and yeah, I wrote online, like, I, you know, I'm sure someone might have an answer, but I, I can't think of it, and I don't know if I would even agree if someone else did have an answer. I can't think of a match better, a better match from a younger combined age where Mark was literally 17 on that show and Jay was 18. So Matt, we're both older than that combined age of 35 right now. Yeah. I mean, I can't, I can't think the, the of, I thing, can't think of too many matches that have two guys of that, that young age to begin with. But the fact is like the one that I remember or the ones that I remember, cause they did have other singles matches were phenomenal. And it was because it was the Briscoes doing it. You know, I mean, I think most of the time you put a 16 and a 17 year old or 17 and 18 year old in a match against each other. You're just, you know, you're just hoping they get through it. Okay. You know, without, you know, without botching anything too badly. And they had this, like they had psychology, they had timing, like, yeah, absolute prodigies. I, I, you know, it was something that I never really thought about because, you know, but now people are talking about it, you know, in their retrospectives of Jay Briscoe's life. And, you know, I saw Jay's mom, you know, on, on a news clip, um, that they trained themselves basically. And I don't think you would ever think that from watching them because they are, besides just being spectacular, which they were, they also seem to me, at least from, you know, the eyes of a fan, very fundamentally sound. Like I was thinking about that match that we just reviewed on the last show between Jay and Austin Aries and like just the quality of the basics the snugness of the lockups and the basic holds and the footwork and it was just so on point you would never guess if you didn't know that this was a guy who was basically untrained in the traditional sense it's kind of remarkable i mean think back to that first ring of honor show i i tweeted this and i, and I, I was wondering what you thought so i, I wait for the show to ask you but like I really do think that, like, on the very first Ring of Honor show, where Jay was barely 18, I think on that night, he was probably better than 75% of the other people on that ro- on the roster. Like, he was at least, uh, you know, whatever you want to say, more rounded, more charismatic. Who knows? You can debate those. But, like, just in terms of being the – who's the most ex- – who do I want to watch? Who's the most exciting talents here? Like, clearly on a show like that, Loki, Danielson, Christopher Daniels were on, like, a level of their own. And obviously you had 
you know, it's almost cheating. I almost don't consider them Eddie Guerrero and super crazy as fly-ins. But in terms of the undercard, like Jay Briscoe was barely 18 years old. And I would put him like, I'd rather watch him than a lot of the other people on that undercard on that show. Right. I mean, they had guys on that undercard that had like really good reputations. But as far as like the performances they put on on that show, you know, he stood out over Homicide. He stood out over Scoot Andrews and Xavier and guys like that. You know, um, it's, it's not like, it's not like those, you know, and it's, you know, it's, I think Spanky was on that show. It's, it's not like he's, uh, he was necessarily better than those guys were at that time, but he was somebody who was more dynamic and captured the crowd's imagination very, very early. And, you know, it was interesting that whole first year, almost all of it, except when they went to Boston, Jay had to wrestle singles or tag with other people in, in ROH. It wasn't like they got to do their full act. So I think, you know, in some ways that probably helped grow as a, helped Jay grow as a singles wrestler because I think, you know, and we've, you know, different points, I think it was more or less true than other points. But, you know, I think most people consider Jay the better of the two is on his own. Um, you know, I heard people earlier this week um, talk about Jay Briscoe just on his own as one of the great wrestlers of all time. And obviously, the era that we're reviewing is not his peak era as far as a singles wrestler. We, we, we're many years away from when he gets to win the, uh, the ROH title and all that stuff. But, you know, I think it's just, it's just the trajectory that he took was interesting. When you talk about that match from uh, Boston in 2002 between Jay and Mark, you know, in some ways, they're the, they're the same Briscoes that they grow up into, but in other ways, they're totally unrecognizable. They are literally pimply kids in that match, and they just grow into – I mean like just monsters, in a, and I mean that in a good way, in terms of just physicality, um, personality. And it's, it's so fascinating that we got to watch them grow up in front of our eyes, and obviously I think it makes the, the loss – so much greater, even for those of us who never got to uh, to know them as people. They, uh, yeah, yeah, they did. They they did something that you know happens to us a lot in life, but not in wrestling generally. Where like you ever have that thing where you know like a relative or something you see them once every couple of years, and you go through that one period where like you don't see them during like a key like time in their adolescence, and then you see them again. Like holy shit, last time I saw you were a kid, and you're an adult now. The Briscoes basically did that in wrestling because they had that thing where they, you know, they left Ring of Honor in 2004 when Mark got hurt and they tried out football for a while. And, you know, like you said, in those first few years, a couple of years of Ring of Honor, they very much look like teens. Like they're kind of gangly and lanky and they've got shaved heads and pimply and, and they, you know, they're, they're, they're still really good wrestlers already then, but they look like teenagers and then they disappear for a bunch of months. And when they come back, like the period we're just getting to now, I remember like at the time when I saw like the first time the Briscoes came back to Ring of Honor. I was like, holy shit, like they're men now. Like they put on a bunch of muscle. Yeah, they're they're, they they're, their they're they're 21 and 22 at the point that we're at now uh, in what in our watching. And like, yeah, they're young. They're young. They're still kids in a lot of ways, but they're, you know, they're officially adults and they look so much more like adults. Yeah, it, it, they, it's just crazy that they happened to live during that one little time period. So all of a sudden, it's like this, it was this big shot, like, holy shit, the Briscoes are, you know, have grown up now. And especially Jay. And, uh, oh, go on. Especially, yeah. especially Jay. He just becomes this, this 
big, big guy who just he seems like besides just being like a you know a great technical wrestler or or a great moves guy or a great big spots guy, he 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 gives the impression of being a powerhouse, and you know he keeps that I would say for the rest of his career. And what this also allows the Briscoes to do is become very believable brawlers, which I think is an underrated aspect of their game. And, you know, luckily a lot of people got to see it, um, at final battle 2022. Um, but, um, but yeah, that, that, that going away and coming back. And also just, I'll say for me, um, you know, a lot of in the post, you know, Gabe, you know, post carry ownership era of ROH, I wasn't watching super consistently. You know, I would go to big shows in New York sometimes. But every time I'd come back to it, the Briscoes had developed just a little bit more, whether it be as characters um, or in terms of their matches or in terms of their look. And it was always just, it was always really fun to see just how the Briscoes continue to evolve, the, you know, throughout their entire run uh, until, you know, until now. And I feel like, they were underappreciated, you know, partly that is because they never got to go to a giant stage like WWE or, or even AEW. But, um, I also feel it's just because in a way their consistency worked against them and being appreciated, I think in one way, in the sense of, I almost compare them to utilities where like, you know, running water in, you know, indoor plumbing, electricity, these are like amazing things that we just take for granted because they're there constantly. You only really notice them when they're gone, when a power outage happens or when, you know, the plumbing has to get shut off for a couple hours for repairs or something. Then you notice how great those things are and how much you enjoy them. And I feel like the Briscoes, they were so consistently good and they were, you know, always in Ring of Honor, always basically available to the indies. It was kind of like because they never had, you know, that big jump or that big period where they disappeared apart from the period we just got through where, where they were very young or, you know, didn't have like a down period and then like a second win. Like they just were so consistent that you kind of, it, it allowed them to fade to the background, I think. You kind of just took for granted, like a utility. Oh, the Briscoes are always good. Like, you would just be like, yeah, Briscoes are always going to put out something good. Like, like you put them against any tag team, and you just assume. It's not going to be like, oh, maybe this will bring the best out of them. It's like, well, the Briscoes are always going to have a good match. You know, you just, you just took it for granted. I think there was another element of it, too, which is the fact that they were wrestling for Ring of Honor. Um, ROH was getting more attention and less attention depending on the era. Like in 2003, 4, 5, 6, 7, even up to 8, um, the ROH style, the ROH matches, like even though they weren't seen by many people, they were very, very celebrated by influencers, taste influencers. People would talk up a huge ROH match in 2004 and 5 and 6. By the time we got to 2015... 2013, when Jay Briscoe was the champion, you know, 2017, more people were watching ROH, but I would say in some ways, there was less discussion about it among the tastemakers. Maybe it was Sinclair, maybe it was just that the, you know, like it didn't have, like we talked about back then when it was going on, like didn't have the identity that it had in the 2000s. Whatever it was, people just weren't paying as much attention to ROH even as more people watched it, which is a weird thing to say, but if you think about it, like, I think you know what I'm talking about. 
And yeah. I, I went to some ROH shows during that era. Like there was a match that I saw, I think it was 2017 with the Briscoes versus the Young Bucks. And I was like, man, if this match had taken place on an ROH show in 2006 or seven, everyone would be talking about it. And just because it was that era, it just, it just was sort of, it went, it happened, you know, Meltzer probably gave it a good star rating and then people didn't think about it. Then luckily last year when Tony Khan bought ROH and FTR was such a hot thing on the internet. And so those matches, they, they got a ton of attention. And so people watched them and talked about them and praised them. I do feel like if those matches had taken place, I don't know, seven years ago, they might not have gotten the same level of attention and, you know, their accolades. Not that they didn't, wouldn't have deserved them, but I don't know that they would have gotten them in a different era. I just think a lot of it is time and place and other things that are surrounding whatever they're doing. Um, but the Briscoes, my point is, the Briscoes were having amazing matches constantly throughout that entire era. Like, they were not just good, they were great the whole time. Jay Briscoe was having great singles matches. I saw the match where he lost the title to Jay Lethal in 2015. I was live for that one, too. And that was a great match that you don't really hear much about because of just the era that it took place in. Um, but they were they were always there. They were always good. And, you know, the fact that people took them for granted, I don't think it was their own doing, necessarily. No. Um... And there's one more thing I want to talk about with Jay, and you know it's not easy, but I think it it, it will end if if people will just go with me on this on a good place, which is something that I think a lot of people have talked about in the wake of his death, and something that obviously hindered his career was he made a uh, year, you know, a decade ago he made a couple pretty rank, completely awful, indefensible comments about gay people, and just there's no excuse for that, and. Obviously, those um, those comments, you know, he got flack when he made them, and he's gotten flack, you know, over the years since then, and they obviously prevented him from getting opportunities with big companies. I mean, if you believe uh, Dave Meltzer on uh, Wrestling Observer Radio this week, that that was the reason they weren't even allowed to do more than a brief mention and a graphic for Jay at the start of Dynamite. You know, it was known before then. That was the reason he was not allowed to be on uh, – a the Briscoes weren't allowed to be on AEW TV, period, even though uh, Tony Khan really wanted to. I think in the, in the New Observer this week, which had a great bio of Jay, uh, Dave actually even says that at one point Tony Khan was going to have uh, the Briscoes team with Jay Lethal against FTR and Wardlaw on the pay-per-view this year. But then he decided because I can't have them on TV, uh, I'll, I'll sub in the more City Machine Guns. But I think one thing that's really – important is when i when i when i hear so many people talking about jay they focus on you know obviously how horrible those comments were and then they focus they go you know they, they talk about how he apologized and made good on it and it's kind of like they're talking about all the greats like you know they're focusing rightfully so the two most important parts of jay which is how apparently he was a great family man and a great friend and he was a great wrestler and then the the bad comments and the apology it's kind of like well we have to kind of say this just to acknowledge it I think there's something in that worth celebrating because the thing I will say is the, you know, those comments are awful and people always, you know, there's people starting talks like, Oh, you know, do you forgive him or should we forgive him? Or why didn't people forgive him? And I always feel uncomfortable talking about forgiveness with celebrities because even though we can give forgiveness to people 
we, you know, we, I, people would argue that the best forgiveness has no conditions. Let's face it. Most of us aren't perfect. And most of us, if we forgive someone, we like to know that they know that they did something wrong and that they're legitimately remorseful. And the problem is we as human beings are not equipped to give celebrities our forgiveness because we don't know these people. We see them when they screw up. You know, if something, if something, they do something so awful, whether they say something horrible in public or they commit a crime, you know, yeah, that shows up in public, but like to know if they're truly remorse, remorseful, you have to know them. So it's like when people are like, Oh, do you, for, do you think this person's, you know, really remorseful it's like i'm not equipped to answer that because i don't know them but something we can always do as outsiders is we can look at their public actions since then and we can look at the action we can look at listen to the words of everyone that knows them and if you've done that this week i for one i have never heard seeing jay make a bad comment since then for over a decade and two You've heard tons of people, whether it's just friends who knew him, whether it's wrestlers in the LGBTQ community, you know, they've all said that, you know, Jay really worked hard to change himself, that he did when he learned that people were gay, he did not treat them any differently, that he was a booster for them. Uh, Ian Riccoboni, the Ring of Honor commentator who was good friends with Jay, or at least friends, I don't know how close, but they were they were friends. They traveled a lot together, and he's made a lot of comments about him this week. Uh, he talked about how he was a sex educator in New York, and how Jay would actively like after that, like they would have conversations. He would ask like like um Ian like you know tell me about this term like what does cisgender mean? So like like he like it wasn't just a guy who screwed up and then was like I better keep my mouth shut. It was a guy who screwed up. You know, made, you know, donations, apologized, and then from uh, accounts, like, tried to actively, like, learn about the subject that he was ignorant about. And I think that's all to be really celebrated. Like, that's not just the side note. That, to me, is to be celebrated because it is so rare in today's world, especially in wrestling, but in, in the whole world. How often do we see these days when someone makes an ill-advised comment or they do something really horrible and it gets out? They double down, they cry about cancel culture, they lean into it, or they don't change their behavior. And I'm not name names, but I can think of probably three to five wrestlers just off the top of my head in the last two or three years that have either done some t- in cases things worse than what Jay said, but in some cases the similar to what Jay said, and they have completely torpedoed their careers because they've doubled down and they've refused to get better really promising careers and they will not be remembered as fondly as Jay. They will not have the people that are just unabashedly proud to love him and talk about how great a person that they were the way of Jay. And they won't have had the second act of their careers that Jay had. And I think that is something to be celebrated and not just put as a side note. Like he, from everything I've heard, I mean, obviously I don't know the person, but from everything that people that knew him well, of said and what I've seen in the public eye, like he manned up. He did what you were supposed to do when you say something ignorant, get called on. on. He eventually, he shut up. He tried to learn what he did wrong. He apologized. He tried to make amends and he didn't do it again. And to me, that is a huge positive part of his legacy. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I agree in the sense, like, like it is certainly a positive part of his legacy in the sense. I just, all we can do is defer to the people that know, you know, and the people who are affected. Yeah. Cause like you mentioned, like forgiving him, obviously, you know, his comments were hurtful, 
not just to LGBTQ people, but to obviously allies and things like that. And, uh, but the affected community, I think, is the one that you defer to the most when it comes to do we forgive somebody? And like you said, everybody that could, would have a stake in this that knew Jay Briscoe doesn't not only seems to have forgiven him, but has is lauding him as a just a wonderful example of somebody who grew and who learned. And you know, I think that everyone who listens to this show knows how we feel about homophobia. We've talked about it. Um, we point it out. We don't find it acceptable. But I think all of us don't want to live in a world where redemption isn't possible, where you have to be permanently punished for doing something wrong if you make amends for that thing. No matter, you know, and you work hard to be better. And I, I think that Jay Briscoe is an example of somebody who, by all accounts, again, we're just going by what other people have said who would, would know, has worked hard, worked really hard to be better. And, you know, and was not only better, but just, just a fantastic guy. And, you know, count me among the people that are really disappointed that, you know, uh, Warner Discovery wouldn't let AW air a, a, you know, a full, a full television tribute to him. Uh, I don't think it's fair. I, you know, I think part of it is also, I think if Bris, if the Briscoes were more high profile, yeah. they might have gotten that second chance. Um, but I think the issue is with somebody like, like whoever these executives at Warner Discovery are that made this decision, to them, all Jay Briscoe is is a tweet. They might not have ever even seen him before. Yeah. And so that tweet is, is a, it stopped him from them from becoming more famous. And that lack of fame stopped them from getting those later opportunities. You know, when I say them, obviously, you know, Jay is the one who made the tweet. Um, but it obviously affected both Jay and Mark. Um, but no, I believe that I, when I, when I read everybody tell, tell me that Jay grew and learned and didn't harbor hate in his heart and, you know, became an ally, became supportive, made good on his mistakes. I believe them. And, you know, I think yeah. that we all want to live in a world where, you know, we can be redeemed. And I think that, I think he was. And, you know, it's, it's very sad that he couldn't have ever gotten the, the notoriety he deserved except, except in death. Um, you know, now he's getting, you know, I mean, he's getting praised in from all corners. He's getting covered on, you know, non wrestling news outlets. I mean, can you think of another example of WWE stopping the show for a contemporary wrestler who never worked for them to announce their I don't death? Think, like, I don't think there ever was. Or, I mean, yeah. granted, this is partly because they were so entrenched in a smaller community. But to show you, like, how entrenched, you know, Jay was a, a like a, an assistant coach or a coach on their local sports team with his kid and stuff. Like, they shut down the school district because yeah. Jay passed away. Like, yeah. how, think of how entrenched you have to be in a local culture and how beloved you have to be where, you know, it's like, we're not going to have run school tomorrow. This was a, this a, man died. This was a towering figure, like in his community, in the wrestling world. And, you know, like I said, unfortunately, maybe it took his extremely tragic death to make everybody realize how, what, to ta- what a towering figure he was. But, 
everyone's going to realize it now. And, um, you know, I just, you know, I'm thankful that we got to see him. I'm thankful that we're going to get to keep watching him. I, um, you know, I'm keeping his family and Mark and, and his, and his, and Jay's wife and children in my thoughts. And, um, yeah, I hope that, you know, I just, you know, I hope that they'll be okay. Yeah, I guess I'll, yeah, I'll just end too. If anyone, you know, you know, who's listening to this that has known the Briscoes, um, if you eventually ever listen to this, I would just say, like, our sincere condolences, and I hope you can take some very small solace in the fact that we, along with so many other people, when you finally do look online, I'm sure uh, at the time of this recording, you have better things to do. I'm sure you will see just countless people that loved both his work and him as a person. And I hope, you know, you can take some small solace in the fact that he was truly appreciated and truly thought of thought fondly by, you know, far more people than most of us will ever be thought of by period. So rest in peace. And with that, I guess we should try and do what we normally do and hopefully it will do for us, but hopefully it can do for other people, which is let's talk about some dumb professional wrestling Let's see if it takes our mind off. Let's see if we can laugh a little, have some fun. Let's talk about the show tonight. Let's talk about Ring of Homicide. It took place May 13, um, 2006. A a strange name for a show to be talking about tonight, but we had a conversation. Like, I think you all know as listeners, this is, you know, this is the next show. This is what we do. Like, this is, so that's the, um, yeah, we name our shows after the episode. So this is the episode that we're on. And, um, you know, it's, you know, maybe an unfortunate coincidence, but this is, you know, that's the show. Yeah. One thing I'll say is like, when I was talking to Matt privately is, uh, I was like, we'll leave the title of this show. I was like, that was one of my opinion. I was thinking, well, if we leave it for the, for the people, for the show, that's fine. Because I feel like everyone that listens to us, you're entrenched a ring of honor. It's not going to feel weird to you, but like, for example, when I promote this show on Twitter to thousands of people, I'm not going to use the f- words ring of homicide because I realize if you're not in- entrenched in a world where homicide is just a normal thing, yeah, that, that would definitely be weird. You know, in the same way, remember that show last year where um, Brian Danielson's in the parking lot feuding with homicide and he's just screaming in an empty parking lot, homicide at the top of his lungs, like Homicide creates some weird moments like that. But uh, if you're a Ring of Honor fan, it kind of just washes over you. But Ring of Homicide took place May 13, 2006, at the Inman Sports Club in Edison, New Jersey, in front of a report crowd of 650 fans. Which, funnel, funnily, enough is the fir- one of which is, day- funnily enough, that's the first venue at the fourth anniversary that I ever saw the Briscoes wrestle live. Just a side note. Wow. wow. And... Uh, yeah, another interesting thing is um, this was another day where um, CZW ran the same day as Ring of Honor, and some of the wrestlers worked both shows, but they were not in the same city and not in the same building. So it was kind of a doubleheader, but kind of not really. So this is an observer report on the CZW show that ran that same day. It drew 500 people. Dave writes, CZW did its sixth annual Best of the Best show on uh, 
May 13th at the ECW Arena, which lasted four hours and 45 minutes and included three CZW title changes, two of which were in the tournament. The first title change was in the tournament first round as Christopher Daniels won the three, the, won the title over Champ Ruckus in a three-way that also included Derek Frazier and uh, Daniels then, and Dave Royds in parentheses, and this story ends up making sense by the end of the night, did a babyface speech saying he didn't want to win the title that way and was giving it back. He did since he giving it back. He did since he and Ruckus were scheduled for the next round. He, he'd give Ruckus the belt and try and win from him in the next round. Ruckus then pinned Daniels to keep the title. The tournament came down to Ruckus versus Claudio Castagnoli versus Austin Aries versus Sabian with the title at stake for the third time on the show. Ruckus pinned Aries to win the tournament and keep the title. At that point, Chris Hero showed up and apparently he was in line for a title shot and demanded it right then doing the edge scene deal. He won the title in a short match. Hero and Castagnoli were celebrating the title, but were celebrating the title win and then left. Aries and Roderick Strong then attacked Ruckus. Daniels ran in for the save and started yelling at Aries and Strong. It was the swerve as Daniels gave Ruckus the Angels wings on the best of the best trophy and the three ROH guys were beating down Ruckus until some CCW guys made the save. Matt, I want to point something out here. Christopher Daniels never comes back to CCW. Ring of Honor doesn't have any involvement with CCW after this, like on the CCW end. Um, they built this whole show, I believe this was the best of the best tournament, and it was built even, I think, as like Ring of Honor versus CCW. In addition to the names we've already mentioned, I think Matt Seidel worked the show, Jay Lethal worked the show, you know, Roderick Strong worked the show. You know, they end on this big heat angle centered around Christopher Daniels, and I looked at the next few shows on Cage Match of CCW. They basically give up on the Ring of Honor angle. You know, from this from this point on, it's Ring of Honor running it and nobody else. Yeah, it's, it's insane. It feels like self-sabotage to me, but I guess they had their reasons. So um, we open the show proper with uh, BJ Whitmer backstage who says, The biggest question of Ring of Honor today is where Homicide stands. Will Homicide come join the fight with Ring of Honor? Whitmer heard what Homicide said about Ring of Honor the night before. This is the second half of a double shot, obviously. And on the night before, Homicide, you know, he was basically like, screw Ring of Honor. Maybe I should join with CCW when... You know, he felt like he got screwed in the outcome of a tag team match. And uh, Whitmer says he and the Homicide have never seen eye to eye. They do have history together. He runs down that limited history with each other, the, the couple of matches they've had. And then he asks Homicide what he wants his legacy and Ring of Honor to be. So we're really building that up for an angle that will be resolved, I guess, partially by the end of the night. And uh, next we have uh, we cut to Prince. Nana, Jimmy Raven, Daisy Hayes, elsewhere backstage, the embassy. There's an angry Prince Nana telling Jimmy Raven to focus on only one thing tonight, beating the chicken fried rice of Jimmy Yang. That's Nana's words. That's not mine. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just Daisy. like, it's, it's just interesting, like, how, how long we could go at watching a wrestling show in this era without something offensive, racist, homophobic, whatever being said. Um, and this time we went, what, a minute and a half? Yeah. Oh, uh, Daisy Hayes suggests letting her take care of Yang tonight. Jimmy says he can take care of Yang, but then he asks her to watch his back though, because Yang, he says, he says, and I quote, has ninja friends, which made me laugh out loud. Just the earnest way he's like, you know, he has ninja friends. I wonder and if he so was referring Daisy- to Bruce Leroy or Leroy or whatever, <laughs> or if uh, there were, other, I mean, because I guess he wasn't really a ninja, but, or were there, uh, or there were there other ninja friends that he had? Um, remember, remember in, um, remember in, um, WCW at Super Brawl 2 when, um, 
when Ricky Steamboat had a ninja in his corner, and then it turned out to be Paulie Dangerously who hit him with a phone. <laughs> so maybe it was Paulie. <laughs> I love, I love that. That was such a good deep pull. <laughs> that caught me off guard. I love that. Um, so yeah, Rave just says that Yang's gonna fall victim to the Green Ghana end of the promo. And uh, we get an opener finally. We get a Colt Cabana defeating Kikitaro via pinfall in 6 minutes, 56 seconds after he hit a powerbomb. Uh, before the match starts, Cabana gets a loud chant. And as a result, Kikitaro goes outside the ring in frustration. He's kind of moping that, like, why am I not getting this kind of reaction? And Colt then gets on the mic and he says, they chant your name, but you change it every week, which I thought was a cute line. Very clever ad lib right there. Because he used to be Ebison and Ebitaro and finally Kikitaro. So, you know, this is his third name in a couple of years. So, yeah, uh, you know, Colt with a nice little zinger there. Uh, Kikitaro gets on the mic. He talks about seeing Cabana's pee-pee in Japan. Uh, some fan heckles him or something. And then Kikitaro calls that fan a homosexual. So, again, continuing on with that stuff. Um, and, Matt, before I hand it to you, I guess we should talk about the one big change on the show, which is Lenny Leonard is not there, and he will not be here for quite some time. We go to The Observer. They, Dave wrote at the time, announcer Lenny Leonard tore the patella tendons in both knees and had three-and-a-half-hour double knee surgery this past week and will be out of the DVD broadcast booth for a little while. They needed to take tendons from his thigh and transplant them to his knee. So, yeah, he suffered that, I believe, playing softball. And he, he was, instead, he is replaced by uh, Jarrett David, a.k.a. Mr. St. Loren from MLW fame. And uh, yeah, from for here for a while now, it's going to be he and Prezak on the call. It's um, um, it's uh, on, yeah. it's kind of like amusing. I mean, even though obviously that's a horrible injury and it's sad that that happened. It's kind of amusing that on commentary, Prezak, cause, because Leonard was on the DVD for the show the night before. So Prezak had to say the softball accident happened that afternoon, um, which obviously it, it didn't. <laughs> you know, they just they just um, um, had to work that out storyline wise. The other funny anecdote um, about the softball injury is if I'm recalling correctly from his interview on an honorable mention, uh, Lenny said that they kind of didn't necessarily totally believe him when he told them that he got hurt <laughs> like that playing softball. And like, you know, and I, I don't know if they, I don't remember what he said as far as like if they eventually did, but he, uh, you know, he, he said it was an absolutely a real injury and it's exactly what you described. But that's inter- interesting to think that they thought it was like he was making up an excuse or something. Well, on commentary, Prezak, and I wonder if this ties into one at one point when he's talking, explaining Lenny Leonard's absence, you know, he mentions the softbox and he says Lenny will be out for a couple weeks. And I'll just tell you, he's out for far longer than a couple weeks. He misses yeah, a I'd whole bunch of four, shows, I'd say so. about four, four or five months, probably. Yeah. So I, again, I don't know if that point they really thought, ah, Lenny's just calling in sick. He'll be back soon. Or, or like, I wonder if that's a reflection of that or not. But, um, Either way, this was the opener, Matt, and uh, you know, if you guys expected a lot of comedy, that's what you got, right? Yeah, and um, you know, Kikutaro did a comedy match the night before that was sort of like almost like a greatest hits from the first big comedy match he did in ROH uh, the year before. This was he at least did some other different things, stuff he didn't do in the matches that involved Delirious, um, which I appreciated. Um, and so in that sense, I thought this was better than the night before. I thought, I thought the crowd was more responsive. I also liked that Colt Cabana was finally working like an actual prelim match 
after being, you know, tricked into wrestling those darn main events so many times on recent shows. So this was like a legit, like, bottom of the card match, and he worked it like that. So, but, you know, it was all comedy. They, you know, they, um, Kikutar did the up high, down low, too slow thing. Um, and they do a little dance that the crowd enjoys very much, and they just keep doing that stuff for a while. And, you know, Colt beckons him to grab his wrist. And when he does, Colt says, Arigato, then runs toward the ropes and sends Hikitaro out of the ring with his momentum. And then he ends up on the outside. And Hikitaro uses the ropes to crotch him on the way in. And then he crotches the referee, Mr. Duke, on the way in as well. <laughs> so that allows Colt to ask the ref, are your balls okay? Um, which is not something you hear too often in a wrestling <laughs> match. Um Kikitaro tries to do a fancy rope walk, but falls and crotches himself in a comical way. Um, Colt hits the flying asshole, big lariat, and so all of a sudden things got very serious, but Kikitaro kicks out. hits. He actually hits a full-speed Shining Wizard in this match instead of a slow-motion one. And then when the ref counts, he yells, too slow, which is a callback from the previous part of the match, but this time he says it sincerely. Um then we go back to comedy. Mr. Duke and Colt somehow end up being dosi doed into Kikitaro, and then Cabana powers hum, power bombs him and does folding press for the win. Um, you know, nothing remarkable, but I think this was fine for what it was. Um, the crowd definitely enjoyed it, which is, you know, that's what you're going for here, right? So I got no complaints. Yeah, I enjoyed this. I mean, obviously, comedy is extremely subjective. And also, if you've watched a lot of Kikataro, you know, you know, like Matt said, he did mostly stuff you've seen before. So, you know, your mileage is going to also vary on how much of a taste you have for seeing the same stuff again. I, I, I get a fairly big kick about from Kikataro. I personally but, but like if where you just, if you just saw him in ROH, you he would not seen some of this stuff before, which is, I think, a good thing for the ROH audience. Yeah, and. I think my favorite spot was that moment where uh, Colt does the counter. I think when a guy's like a hammerlock or something, or something where he uh, like lifts his foot up and catches the guy's hands behind his back, and then like uses his foot to like drag the feet down. And then Kikotaro tries to do it, but he's not flexible enough, so he can't do it. And uh, I thought that got like a legit chuckle out of me. And uh, my other favorite part of this match was on commentary where. Uh, Dave Prezak says at one point that Caban needs a big win here to climb the ladder ring of our. I just thought. In what world is, like, win over Kikataro going to be, like, you're back on top? Like, no offense, yeah. but, like... Yeah, if, if, if Cabana needs a big win, well, he's screwed because he can't get one in this match. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, also, I, was, I guess there's a good place to ask, like, I thought uh, Jared David, obviously, Mr. St. Laurent, I thought he was perfectly adequate here. I would kind of describe him on this as, like, a replacement-level announcer in the sense of... I never really noticed him in a good way or a bad way. Like he just kind of does his job, which is fine, I guess, you know, like, yeah, I mean, honestly, I didn't really ever go like, wow, he added, Oh, go on. I, I always thought that he was underrated. Like I, I never thought he was so much worse than the other two guys that were always there. Like, honestly, like I, I mean, and you know, maybe it's cause I, you know, saw the whole run and he gets better, but like, yeah, I think he's, I think he's pretty solid. And I will also say, again, I think he's perfectly fine. And, and so in the grand scheme of, like, Ring of Honor announcers up to this point in their history, perfectly fine, like, puts him in, like, the top tier. <laughs> like, he's better than a lot of them already. Yeah, he is. You know, he is. He is in the top being, tier of ROH announcers. 
Yeah, even just on his first show where you would like where you might be maybe getting your bearings and getting into the flow of things. Like he's already better than multiple people we have listened to in the history of this podcast. But that brings us to the second match on the show. The Rottweilers of Homicide and Ricky Reyes with Julius Smokes defeated the Ring Crew Express of Dana Marcos in six minutes, 15 seconds when Reyes made Marcos tap out to the Dragon Sleeper. Uh, this was a squat, another squash match tape for rhvideos.com. They seem to be having like one of those to show at this time. Um, homicide, I, this is one of those matches where I noticed that I've noticed this before. Homicide has always been a pretty generous guy with his opponents. Like, I feel like when you watch homicide, he always gives his opponents a little more if they're like lower on the card than him, than probably a lot of other wrestlers of his push level and stature would give like he always gives them just a little bit more offense he he just seems to be kind of generous in that respect i think you even see that in the main event with like some of the kickouts he gives uh necro butcher um this is all fast paced action homicide despite pulling double duty actually you know he doesn't he you know it's not a long match but he pulls out a couple of big moves even for this match like he does a superplex that goes into a falcon arrow after the landing he pulls out his frog splash it was fast fast paced fairly action-packed uh, for a typical kind of just like an enhancement squash, you know, I thought this was above average. This was enjoyable and, you know, it was nice. Again, I, I was kind of heartwarmed that like you probably could have gotten away with like just destroying the ring crew express in three minutes. And you could argue whether that would have been better or not for like homicides a rep, but like they actually gave him a significant amount of offense here. Yeah. I wasn't into this. Um, I, I uh, <laughs> no, that's, the crowd wasn't particularly hot. Like every time they did a hot tag, like the crowd didn't react. My two favorite parts were one when the crowd actually they got them to make some noise because Reyes locked in a chin lock. So the chin lock was one of the hot spots of the match. And also when Homicide went for an ace crusher on Dunn early, um, before Dunn reverses it, um, Homicide goes for the ace crusher and yells "Fuck you, Holmes!" And so. <laughs> Those are my two favorite parts of this match. This was felt like a nothing match to me. Actually, can we talk about the crowd for a second? Because uh, that's a uh, that really gets my mind on it. I want to ask you about this. I thought this crowd was so weird because for most of the night, I felt like this crowd was almost kind of a little bit like a Japanese crowd where they'd be really quiet for a lot for a bunch of the matches to the point where I could hear like individual fans heckles and talking but like anytime a move happened they'd have like quickly give it like a little reaction it was it was like quiet to the point you think oh they're just not into this but then like whenever a move happened that was any in any way significant like they would give a little cheer and a a pop and then something well maybe that's just this crowd you know because some crowds are higher than others and then when we get to you know the final match or technically two matches on the show they are like molten hot it's like someone flipped a switch so i don't know like I guess, like I, I don't know how to, I don't know how to describe this crowd because uh, I thought maybe this is just the way they are. But then they're on they, they, when they need to turn it up at the very end, they go apeshit. Well, so I don't really know how to judge this crowd. Well, I was at this show and I was also at the show How We Roll, which we reviewed on the last episode. And comparison between the two, I mean, this felt like the hottest crowd in history to me that night. Like after that Long <laughs> Island show, because because like the Long Island crowd that night, not always, but that, on that night. They seemed to just be like negative. Like they were just make mocking the matches. They were having like side chatter. They weren't really reacting to what was happening. And on this show, the crowd seemed to be into the characters, the angles. They cared. And I don't know. The way I saw it, like the crowd was pretty responsive and when they were supposed to be. And in the first half of the show, like I thought they had some pretty 
hot reactions, like in the pure title match and the world title match. I think they got really into it. I think after intermission, they were a little bit of a tougher crowd um, before the main event. Um, and I think I agree with your assessment there. I think they were – it was just hard to heat them back up. And I think yeah. they were really, really waiting for that Joe Necro match. Um, I think – and there was also I think a, lot, a decent CZW contingent in the matches you saw during the Danielson match. I mean in the crowd. So I think that was part of it too. But I think overall, even though they were quiet sometimes, I would consider this a, a, a solid crowd overall. I, I don't think that they – you know, they were there with it. For, with any intention other than to, uh, you know, enjoy the show. And that's a good point too, about the CZW thing, which I failed to mention. Like, you know, I don't think it's, this is not like the hundred show where they have like this huge section of their own. They're really this vocal presence in every match, but we'll get to the Danielson match and stuff. Like there are clearly a bunch of CZW fans that likely like decide to make a day of it and probably drove up to New Jersey after seeing best of the best that afternoon. And, yeah, it definitely you, – you notice it on a couple matches. But uh, after this match that we just talked about, Adam Pierce, clad in his ring robe, walks to the ring, grabs the mic. He's obviously currently the lieutenant commissioner with uh, Jim Cornette injured. Homicide screams, where the fuck he came from, which gets a laugh from the crowd as well yeah, as uh, me. I, yeah, um, that was great. <laughs> I love because, like, Homicide like, like legit isn't seeing him until, like, he's right up in the ring. And so when he turns around, he's just like, like what? Like, I love that. And – um. Um, Pierce says he and Homicide have no history, but Homicide does history with ROH. Homicide then goes, not this shit again. Which, <laughs> Homicide just on a roll here. Homicide was um, fantastic. Pierce talks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Pierce talks about how Homicide was, has been with Ring of Honor since day one, and for the last five months, Ring of Honor has been getting their asses kicked from the people at CZW. Pierce says the fans, Jim Cornette, Pierce, they all want Homicide's help. He says, you know, he knows in Homicide's heart he cares about Ring of Honor, and he asks him what he wants his legacy to be. He hands Homicide the mic. Fans start chanting Ring of Honor. Homicide teases that he's going to say something, and instead he just drops the mic and walks out of the well, ring. But there's a couple of other an angle that will. There's a couple other things oh, yeah, that you missed. Well, there was one point where where Pierce says the fans want it, and Homicide off mic goes like, "I give a fuck about these people," and then Jim, <laughs> and then Pierce says, "Jim Cornette wants it." And Homicide, again, off mic says, I don't give a fuck about Jim. And then Pierce says, I want it. And Homicide just gives him this like grimace and goes, who the fuck are you? And I thought that was my favorite part of the promo. And whether this was a concerted effort or not, we'll see the uh, the backstage promo we'll get to later with someone with Joe and Julius Smokes. It, it, it works out nicely because it does give Homicide a reason to fight for Ring of Honor, but it's not just like, the same reason here. Like it, it clearly in the storyline, the idea is like, you can't play on homicides emotions via like, Oh, you know, the people want it. We want like, he, like, like you just point out like homicides, like I don't give a fuck what any of you want. You know, I, I don't care. So we'll see what we'll, we'll reveal later. What seems to change his mind. But, um, Jimmy rave next, uh, took on and defeated Jimmy Yang via pinfall in 12 minutes, 28 seconds after hitting the greens from Ghana. An interesting thing about this match is, this turned out to be uh, Jimmy Yang's last match in Ring of Honor. Um, yet there's this did not make the DVD, but reading live reports, I guess it there it looks like maybe they had plans to have him last a little longer because there's a live report sent into the PW Torch website from a uh, Greg Chornomaz. Uh, apologies if I'm butchering your name there, and he wrote after the match, 
Yang told Ray that this wasn't over, and Yang challenged the embassy to a match at the next show in New York. Well, that promo does not make the DVD, and Yang never wrestles in Ring of Honor again. In fact, at the end of this match, Prezik on commentary says, Rave wins the feud against Jimmy Yang, which is classic Gabe Sapolsky verbiage for this is done, you know. So, Matt, what would you think about the match? And, you know, the last time we we're going to see uh, Jimmy Yang on Through the Years, a storied run for him. Um, so they had another match um, at, I believe it was Best in the World, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. And they um, – that match was fast-paced, and I thought it was pretty fun. This match was a little bit slower paced. There's a lot more of the Jimmy Rave stalling that he had been doing more and more of lately. And I don't think this match was as good as that one. I thought like I thought that like more like high energy thing worked better for these two than this one. There was a lot of like first of all, Yang was a little bit heelish the night before and um and this time he's just fully babyface. Um, so it's because, I mean, which makes sense going against Rave. So Rave would slap Jimmy Yang and then run to the outside and then Yang slapped him and then he runs away again. And so Yang just sits down in the middle of the ring. He waits for Rave to return. Rave then, you know, he slaps Yang on the back of the head, which, and then he runs away again, but this time Yang chases him and stall, stall. So I think like, this is like peak Rave stalling era during, during this match. Just so much stalling. So finally they get in the ring and, you know, Yang does a fl- uh, flurry with, you know, basic stuff, throws him to the, gu- throws him into the guardrails. He does some classic babyface moves. Like he does the 10 corner punches, but he pauses briefly to, um, how do you say, it? thrust his crotch in Jimmy Rave's face, um, which, uh, left me a little bit confused. And Prazak said, I will not comment on that, which is good line from Prazak. Um, so, you know, they continue to work. Um, there's, there's this one point where Nana distracts the ref, which allows Hayes to get into the ring, low blow Yang, and hit a spinning inverted DDT on him. So that was an effective heel plan, Nana's distraction. She invented the destino. She basically did Naito's destino, like Daisy Hayes, the true innovator of wrestling. I mean, that's basically what she did. Yeah, they did. Uh, so, okay, so that was the first time that move ever existed. All right, fair enough. Um, so, <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not, Matt. We're making it true right now. <laughs> fair enough. You know what? When, if, if you say it on a podcast, it becomes true for all of history. Um, at one point, um, Rave does a wrist, clust, rich, a wrist clutch, excuse me, abdominal stretch, and then releases the abdominal stretch, but as Kevin Kelly would tell us, he maintains wrist control to swing Rave into a side Russian leg sweep and another stretch on the mat. So I did enjoy the maintenance of wrist control in that. Um, Yang comes back, big uh, backdrop, moonsault press, two count. And Nana comes right into the ring while the ref is distracted and rakes Yang's face, but Yang ends up low-blowing him, hits a super kick on Rave, Goes up top, but Hayes crotches him again. So the uh, the heel interference is working out extremely well for the embassy here. Rave hits the greetings from Ghana, gets the win, wins the feud, and I can confirm because I look back at my own notes from when I was there live. And yes, after the match, Yang did get on the mic. Uh, Bruce Leroy came to the ring, and they issued a challenge for Nana and Rave to come back out and have a tag team match. That did happen. I. I had remembered. Wow, I knew. I knew that Bruce Leroy was at the show, and I was surprised when I didn't see him on the DVD. But I guess you know they just cut that apart out because Yang was leaving. It really did feel like they were building 
Bruce Leroy for a bunch of shows like Ashley getting in the ring. Yeah, so he was there. So it's crazy that we never get that. Yeah. I, wow. But, 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 uh, but, but, I have, I, an, I, have I have another imagine, note. Oh, sorry. I have another note. Yang said they would do it at, on June 17th in New York City instead. They did not. But he said it. Yeah, that, that's what the live report said yeah. at the next show in New York. But again, yeah, this is his last show. Um, it's crazy. I thought this match was a very basic match. I would give it like a strong average. But yet, like my expectations were so low for this that I was very slightly pleasantly surprised. Maybe but, I was but, but that's surprising in a to me good mood. It, I, surprising to me because they did have a solid match against each other in New York. It was quick, but it was solid. There was just something – there was just something about this match where I going in, I don't know. I didn't expect much. Like I'm a fan of Jimmy Ray, but he's a very minimalist wrestler at times. And he needs kind of someone that he's a good match with. As you mentioned, he's especially kind of in his ultra stalling Larry Zabisco of the Indies phase at this point in his career. Jimmy Yang, you know, he is not, you know, he's never put in absolute horrible matches, but he just has never clicked in ring of honor. And on his last night, I just thought I, I don't have high hopes for how this is going to turn out. And it was, a perfectly average, acceptable match. You know, you did a good job running it down. I, I think my favorite points were um, Daisy doing inventing the Destino, uh, Rafe selling a kick to the face where he just grabs his face and screams into his hands, which I thought, and then this made me laugh out loud. It's so simple and it's stupid, and it probably appeals to me more than anyone else. Um, you know, there's a common spot in wrestling, obviously, where a heel will go for a pin, a pin, a cover on a on a face. He'll get a two count and he'll go, oh, come on to the ref like that was three. So Rave does that here, except here's what he does it. He, he Jimmy Rave does a vertical suplex on Jimmy Yang. He covers Yang kicks out at one. And Jimmy goes, oh, come on, that was three to the ref. And I just lost because I thought Jimmy Rave in, in, in kayfabe thinks not only does he think that he could have won this match with a vertical suplex, he thinks it was a three count instead of not a two count, instead of a one count. I just thought, <laughs> it was so absurd. I was just like, you know what? That's good stuff. Yeah, it was, you know, it's I, just I like good, that. that's just good heel work right there. Um. So, yeah, that brings us to uh, the Ring of Honor pure title match. Nigel McGinnis successfully defends the title when he defeats Jay Lethal via pinball in 14 minutes, 23 seconds after he hits the Tower of London. Um, this was originally, I believe, scheduled to be Alex Shelley versus uh, Nigel McGinnis, but Alex Shelley hurt himself on the first half of the double shot as we covered on last episode, How We Roll. So they... Uh, Subbed in a local, probably not far away, you know, local hero, Jay Lethal, who was also going to be working, I believe, the TNA show the next night, the, the pay-per-view. So before the match starts, after Nigel's ring introduction, he gets on the mic and he goes, what's up, New York? And then that's his old gimmick of constantly not knowing what city he's in. When he gets corrected, Nigel says he thought New Jersey was just a smelly part of New York. Which, as, uh, some, which, says, as someone who grew up in Staten Island, I can say that is Staten Island erasure right there. <laughs> so, so see here's the thing like that is something new jersey's known for right i mean like i know very base level details about a lot of places in america if you ask me to think of things about new jersey as a canadian i would say bruce springsteen it supposedly doesn't smell good um and um, you can't pump your own gas there like well, those are what i know about new jersey well what i can say is there are, so the part of New Jersey by actually by like Staten Island and, and New York City. So 
yes, there are there are very smelly parts because it's like a big industrial area. Um, whereas Staten Island, when I was growing up, smelled very bad in a lot of parts because it was the home to one of the world's largest landfills. And it was one of the things that we could oh. always say, like, in school, they're like, oh, you can see it from outer space. You know, it's like, oh, great. Um, <laughs> and yeah, no, it, I mean, like, it would genuinely, like, in certain parts of the island, like, really smelled really, really bad, like, especially in the summertime, like, from that garbage dump. And they, they shut down the Fresh Kills landfill in uh, the early aughts. Um, so I don't think it has quite that stink anymore. But, it definitely did back then, and um, that is actually in New York. So I say that it <laughs> will always be the true smelly part of New York. That will never let you erase the stink of Staten Island. That's right. Hashtag remember the stink. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> if anybody says, actually does either, hashtag remember the stink, I'll know that they listened well an hour, well over an hour into this show. So that'll be nice of them. <laughs> Nigel says, either way, the best champs are here in Ring of Honor. But for some reason, people can't decide who's the best champ among them. Some say Austin Aries and Roderick Strong. Some say that that clubfoot clam dinger Brian Danielson is. Nigel says, he's beaten every one of those wankers. He's held his title longer than any of them. And that makes him numero uno. And then he adds, for those of you that don't eat Taco Bell, that's number one. Nigel says, he doesn't need to beat those wankers again. He put out an open challenger tonight. And out comes out Jay Lethal's a surprise opponent. I like the idea that um, um, I like the idea that um, eating Taco Bell will help you know how to count in Spanish, <laughs> and not eating Taco Bell will make it so you can't. A fun fact, probably not a fun fact. Uh, I've eaten Taco Bell, I believe, once in my life because the only Taco Bell we have in this city is a crappy combination KFC Taco Bell. So. I I believe I've had like a soft taco from there once in my life. Um, One time, (laughs) here's an embarrassing story. Um, I I um on a uh, a when I when I went to a camp as like probably like twelve thirteen I think I was twelve years old probably, and we went to um, Dorney Park for a uh, a camp trip, um, which is just an amusement park in Pennsylvania, and they had a like a you know a little Taco Bell stand, and I got <laughs> I don't know why I'm saying this to a bunch of strangers, but um I got a lot of Taco Bell soft tacos. My parents had given me money to get lunch. I guess they should have given me less because I ate way too many soft tacos. I can't tell you how many they were, but it was a lot. <laughs> and also, I went on a bunch of roller coasters. So oh, no. I well, so I thought everything was fine. We we're going to have like an overnight at the, uh, the gymnasium of the, the camp center that, uh, it was the, the JCC, the, that I, that, that we went to it was, so we, we stayed overnight, like in sleeping bags on the floor of the gym. And I felt, was feeling fine, but then I puked all over my sleeping bag and had to get my father to come and pick me up early and could not stay overnight. And then I took the next day off because, I was very sick to my stomach from eating all of those soft tacos. So thank you for reminding me about Taco Bell soft tacos, Trevor. <laughs> See, I, uh, the kind of kid I was, I would have loved, I would have been like, I get to go to an amusement park, I get to eat a bunch of tacos, and I get to sleep in my own bed at night, and all I have to do is vomit. Um, I'd be like, sign me up. I'm, I'm getting the best of all worlds here. <laughs> but I was a kid who didn't like being away from home. So um, 
anyway, this was a strong good match, I'd say, like three and a half stars. Uh, I felt like we've, we've talked about it a little bit that um, it feels like on recent shows, Nigel had started kind of evolving into his more serious Noah, some people call Noah Nigel form. But on this night, it felt like a little bit like he returned to more of a version of his classic, somewhat goofier, earlier pure champ gimmick, which I always have a huge soft spot for. He's not doing as much comedy or wacky spots, but he does do the funny pre-match mic work that took us down memory lane, both of us, that I just talked about. Um, he is even in the match. He throws out during the match the best there is, the best there was line that he stopped doing, but he pulls it out again here. Um, we don't get a ton of it, of the crazy, innovative rule-breaking that he in goofy spots he did in earlier matches, but you know, it does feel a little bit like he wound the clock back a little bit. And this also felt like like the most confident Nigel I've ever seen. It really felt like he doesn't squash lethal, but he really controls this match. And it really feels like he's the guy running the show here. And he just feels so at ease in this match at every moment. Like there's moments where he's just, you know, putting a hold. He's like looking in the crowd and engaging them. Like he's, it feels like, you know, he's got everything he's so under control. He's can kind of, his mind can be in two places at once because he's just got this down at this point and i feel like lethal's a very smooth guy to kind of play in the background to if, if a match is going to be like the nigel show you know lethal's a good guy to be kind of a background guy who can keep up with them um and the last thing i would add is uh the second tower of london that on uh, nigel hits it that ends this match is the most brutal tower of london i've ever seen where um you know it's an ace crusher with the guy's feet dangling on the top turnbuckle and I slow molded on a, on a replay go by frame by frame just to see how brutal this was. Lethal falls completely through Nigel's arms and he lands like face first on the mat. Like his face hits before anything else. You know, his hands don't break the fall. He doesn't land on his shoulder or anything. He takes it right on his forehead and face and just looked brutal. Oh, and one more thing, Matt, I would just want to say, I got not quite offended, but I thought this is ridiculous. Jay Lethal gets a welcome back chant here. He had been gone less than three months. And the fans were like, well, I, I know they probably expect that maybe he was just gone, but I mean, he was not gone very long at all. Uh, but well, he was literally on the last show in that building. <laughs> that was exactly. Yeah. So yeah, if you just went to the New Jersey shows, he literally never left. He's still there. And I think he's going to be on the next one too. Um, <laughs> but, but, um, yeah, no, I, I, but I, you know, I, I think it was a part of the, just the idea, like we didn't think he was going to be back. And so we were happy yeah. to see him. And the other and thing he, is, I, it sounds like he wasn't going to be until Alex Shelley gets hurt. And if you want to get real philosophical about it, he was a heel and his heel run that time was not very good. He was not that good as a heel at that point. And this is a return to the underdog baby face, Jay Lethal. So in that sense, we're welcoming that guy back. And he had been gone for a good while. You know what I mean? <laughs> gone since at least December. Mm-hmm. So um, so I-, I say welcome back, the true Jay Lethal. Um, they had wrestled um, at Joe versus Kobashi. And that was m- even more of like Nigel leaning into like the, the shady – silly heel elements uh that was a very character oriented match so compared to that this actually was a more serious like moves based wrestling match and i like this one better i thought this was a very good wrestling match um jay is very good as an underdog baby face nigel was very good dominating him here you know it wasn't didn't have some deep storyline but it was all action you know N- nigel 
did hit, you know, some of the, the uppercuts and the rebound lariat and a super kick and, you know, the lariat with lethal straddling the top rope. So he, he did, you know, he did have some of the more, um, you know, modern, I guess by this point, Nigel style offense, but, you know, lethal really got the crowd into it at the end. He did such a great job as a baby face. Um, you know, after he, after he kicks out of the tower of London, um, the crowd is really chanting for him. Um, but, um, so, so, you know, the, the running suplex got a, got a good pop. The diving headbutt got a good pop. I, I thought the crowd was just, was kind of rocking by the end of it. And like you said, they had been a little bit quiet earlier. So I think this was just a really, like, it's just a good wrestling match. There's nothing special about it. It was just two solid wrestlers doing a really good job. So I, I, I enjoyed it. Yeah. And quite good match. I didn't include, I didn't include this, but I saw some live report. Someone said it looked like Jay Lethal was holding back because he had a TNA pay-per-view the next night. I didn't really see that. Uh, you know, I, I feel like Nigel kind of leads the match. It's kind of a Nigel show. But I felt like Jay Lethal put in a, a good, honest effort here. No, I mean, no, I, I, don't, I don't think he was. Maybe, I don't think he was. Um, um, I don't think he was holding back pretty much at all, especially yeah. considering this was just. I mean, this was an undercard match. You know, it was, and it was. Mm-hmm. Remember, we we complained about some of like the kind of almost dull undercard matches you would get in 2005. This was like a very good undercard match. Yeah, definitely. And, uh, that brings us to the ring of honor world title match. Brian Danielson successfully defends the title when he defeats delirious via pinfall in 24 minutes, 50 seconds with a small package. Um, before the match, Brian, after having himself announced as the best world champion in the world. So he's really, uh, you know, he and Nigel are basically having this indirect war of words to build up a rematch here. Um, Brian gets on the mic and he says, uh, we have a small pocket of stupidity in the crowd because he's referring to the CZW heckling fans in the back. And then he goes, and a large pocket of stupidity here in Delirious. Danielson says, Delirious doesn't even deserve a title shot. Nigel McGuinness doesn't deserve a title shot. And he's dismayed by the fickle Ring of Honor fans even wanting to see Christian Cage get a title shot. Danielson says, with the same voices they use to chant Dragon right now, they'll chant for all those other R-words in the back. Um, he says R words like Samoa Joe, Christopher Daniels, Delirious, uh, Danielson recommends. The things you could say back then, man. The things you could say. (laughs) It's funny again that he mentions Christopher Daniels again, right? Like, it felt like on the last show, they were kind of giving you, with Danielson walking out, they were setting up like, you know, a Daniels match. And here he brings him up again. And as we talked about on the last show, he does wrestle Daniels. For the title, but not on a Ring of Honor show. Like that, it still feels on this weekend like they're building to a match that we don't. Daniel's apparently the king of um <laughs> matches that get that get teased but don't happen because Claudio Castagnoli match a few shows ago that never comes a one on one match after the handshake angle. Um, the CZW thing we just talked about earlier, you know, he never comes back there. So Daniel's uh more hand threads than an unfinished unfinished uh blanket. You're I don't know. Um, uh, <laughs> gonna have to go. I'm gonna have to go listen back to that to that to that uh, analogy right there. But go on. Normally, we only edit when I say something objectionable. I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not gonna that. have you edit that. But no, not edit. But boy, part of me wants to. Um, so Danielson recommends Delirious walk to the back and go home, or else he'll knock him out, out again. The crowd chants, "Shut the fuck up." Danielson says he has the mic and there's nothing you idiots can do about it. He was going to shut up, 
But since they started chanting and he does things the way he wants to, he'll talk all night long. At this point, Delirious snatches the mic away from Daniels and he cuts a promo in Delirious language that ends with him saying, kick your ass. And he attacks Danielson. The crowd starts chanting, fuck him up, Delirious, fuck him up. The match is on. So Matt, obviously, this is a rematch of a match on the 100th show. That was a match that was all about Danielson jockeying, like jabbering with the CCW fans of the crowd. It was almost a squash. He really destroyed Delirious to the point where Delirious suffered a legit cut on his hand when he uh, grabbed a, a ring post. Uh, this is the the rematch they kind of built up to. What do you think about how this compare? Well, first of all, this is um, this weekend. I think might be like peak Danielson healed him. You know, he was really just like full on like shitting on the crowd, shitting on the babyface heel, both shows this weekend. Um, you know, a lot of times he kind of straddles. This time he's just like, nope, I'm a heel this weekend. Um, and uh, yeah, I've always loved this match. I like how it subverts um, some of the things that happened in the first match. Um, you know, whether the first match had Danielson jumping Delirious when Jul- Delirious was talking. This time, Delirious attacked Danielson at the bell, so I uh, I really appreciated that. There's a few other, you know, kind of uh, turnabouts as we go through the match. But, you know, I mean, it's we do get the, the Danielson um, dominate, dominant period. He goes for a cattle mutilation very early, uh, but Delirious quickly rolls out. Um, the crowd immediately um, is chanting um, overrated at Danielson. Um, and it's interesting. We'll get to some of the chants the CZW guys, the CZW uh, contingent, does in the match because I think they actually invent some stuff that becomes more common as we as we uh, go on in wrestling history. But yeah, um, D- Delirious his comeback is uh, reversing a, a soup reversing a suplex into a head scissors, hitting a leapfrogging a leaping lariat. So already right at the beginning, the match is more back and forth than the first match. Um, he chokes Danielson with one of his mask tassels, um, but Danielson takes back over. He slows it down. Um, a little bit, but De- but Delirious does crossbody him against the rope, so they both fly over the top rope to the floor, and Delirious just slams a chair into Danielson's head, which every time I see that, it makes me mad that there are ever any disqualifications in ROH, because it's so inconsistent, um, but I'm just going to have that pet peeve forever. Um, um, then he throws Danielson's head into a chair that a fan is holding up, um, and Danielson comes back by dropping Delirious across the guardrail from a fireman's carry position, and he throws a chair at Delirious, yelling, you want to be a tough guy? To which you hear one fan. I don't know if you noticed this. So Danielson goes, you want to be a tough guy? And one guy goes in the crowd, yes, I do, actually. Um, so I guess, <laughs> did you notice that? I guess that, that person just, he wants No, he, I did not. He does, in fact, want, he wants to be a tough guy. So... Back in the ring, Danielson goes for a surfboard, and this is when you hear the people in the crowd chant, same old shit. So Danielson, just he stops, he looks, and he says, yeah, it is. What the fuck are you going to do about it? And he does the surfboard, <laughs> um, which I I don't know if you realize this, but like same old shit becomes something that people chant at John Cena, most notably a month after this at um, ECW One Night Stand against Rob Van Dam. And I don't remember hearing it before. Maybe you did. But did this crowd on this night kind of invent that chant? I can't. I mean, it can't be. But, like, I can't think of other notable times where I heard it before this. I'm not sure. But it's also funny because, like, 
when you think about because like the CZW fans, like they're always chanting at him like boring and overrated. So, but saying same old shit presumes that like you've watched a lot of Brian Danielson. Well, <laughs> like, sure. I mean, it's I funny mean, all how the, that all these people goes actually together. like Brian Danielson. Nobody didn't like yeah, Brian. Yeah. Da- you know that they're 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 playing a character. Um, so <laughs> this we get this weird section in the middle of the match where it's like he's working over Delirious, but it's really Danielson versus the crowd. Like at this point in the match, um, it's sort of like a, a tangent. He he pulls Delirious's head toward his crotch while saying. I'm making him teabag me while he has him in the surfboard position. So that's a very 2006 version of a heel <laughs> right there. Um, he chokes Delirious with his own tassels. Then he does I have till five. And then he on his own looks to the crowd and goes, same old shit. Um, so that gets the ROH fans to start treating Danielson like a baby face. So he can, he's trying hard to be a heel, but he has so much fun fucking with the CZW fans that he – Turns himself babyface to the ROH fans, um, which you know you're play you're working the crowd, so it happens. Um, at one point, a fan calls Danielson a, T- a TNA reject, so the CZW fans start chanting that. So Danielson goes, "I don't know if you heard, but I rejected TNA, so fuck off." And then he says, <laughs> "Besides, they wouldn't let me do the same old shit." And then he does another surfboard to Delirious, so. This is a very fun sequence of the match. I don't know what Delirious was thinking here because it was probably like, um, don't forget about me, but um, <laughs> it was very entertaining. Um, so Danielson does get back to focusing on Delirious, and so does the crowd. He does a, Danielson does a cross-arm breaker, and we actually get a please don't tap chant, which shows how much Dragon has gotten over the idea that he can end a match in various ways because other t- otherwise you wouldn't expect anybody to tap to a cross-arm breaker when no one's ever done that to him that's never happened in a Danielson match before. Um, um, but so at one point when Danielson tries to lock in an abdominal stretch, Delirious finds a very clever way to avoid it by just spinning around and around and around until Danielson flies out to the floor. Uh, that's a very good counter to an abdominal stretch, I have to say. And then Delirious hits a tope, which <laughs> I didn't, I don't think I realized this. Prazak says Delirious calls the suicide flip. Even though there's no flip involved. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't aware of that. Um, so Delirious takes back over, makes his comeback, chops in the corner. Um, but Danielson hits a cravat suplex to break up the momentum. Delirious catches him with a cutter on the way down from a headbutt. And they do get this series of reversals where Delirious gets a crucifix and sails right into a cobra stretch. But Danielson makes the ropes. Um, they go back and forth some more. Danielson hits a dragon suplex, gets the chicken wing on, and Delirious struggles for a while and gets a big pop when he reaches the ropes. Uh, he uh, counters a belly-to-back super, superplex into a crossbody, another big pop, um, hits a drop kick to the back, the panic attack, hits the shadows over hell for a pretty good near fall, then does the Cobra clutch back, backbreaker into the Cobra stretch. The crowd's going nuts. Danielson fights to the ropes. Um, and Delirious goes for another Shadows Over Hell, but Danielson moves, locks in the cattle mutilation. The crowd again goes nuts when Delirious makes it to the bottom rope. So Danielson does the elbows, which is how he knocked out Delirious in the first match. But Delirious actually fights his way out, which I think is the first time anyone has ever done that. It gets a huge pop, hits a couple of really big punts at Danielson's head, and then charges at him. But Danielson gets a small package, 
for a flash pin. I mean, the fact that he got they got the crowd even possibly entertaining the idea that Delirious might win the title here, I think is a testament to how good Danielson is and that this match became a really, really, really good match. Um, I think it just had a lot of different entertaining segments, a lot of different things that were entertaining about it, but in the end it came back to Delirious getting over by being an underdog and fighting up and Danielson giving him just enough to get the crowd to believe. And I really, really like this and thinks it and think it holds up pretty well. I like this match a little less than you, but I still thought this was a very good match boarding on grade and I enjoyed it quite a bit. Um one thing it's funny how context changes things because the first match between Danielson and Delirious was filled with Danielson just mocking uh, CZW fans and I loved that aspect of it and this one the, the 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 stuff you described like the Danielson material is great but I actually felt a little I kind of like you I felt a little bad for Delirious in this one more than the first one and I think maybe it's because this one like the first one was kind of like this unexpected match uh, we we you and I kind of believe based on things we've heard and seen that like it wasn't even supposed to be Delirious Danielson that night it was supposed to be Davey Richards Danielson so you know impromptu match Delirious was just starting to get a push so it was okay if the whole match was about the CCW crowd and Danielson. Plus, that was a very special night where the crowd was the story of the whole show. This night, where it's like the grudge rematch and Delirious is getting a little more offense, I felt like, okay, maybe you're, even though as fun as this is, maybe you're like leaving Delirious out a bit and like doing a little bit of a disservice by him to focusing on the CCW crowd this much in this match, even though I loved it in the first one. Um, but by the final third of the match, this is about, you know, this, they then focus in on Delirious and Danielson all the way at the in the final third. Um, Delirious, for the most part, like he doesn't dramatically wrestle differently. Like there's a few moments, and I wish there was more of those moments because those moments are some of my favorite parts of this match. Like the the start of the match, him attacking before the bell, like you said, that's a great switch up, and I love like that's a different side of Delirious that again suggests this is a bigger match for him. This is a grudge match. He's angry that he got cut against Danielson the first time, and him even starting you know saying English, I'm going to kick your ass. Um, him choking Danielson with the tassel again, you know, Delirious is a face at this point, but he's angry. You know, the use of the chairs, but between those moments, it's just another Danielson Delirious match. But that's pretty good because those are really good matches. Um. Danielson controls a lot of the match, but he doesn't quite feel as dominant as the first match. So I like that bit of progression. I love that spot where Delirious counters the Danielson flying headbutt with the ace crusher. Um, I like how he just counters a full Nelson by sitting out and then he kicks Danielson right in the head from that ascending position. Um, the, the the two other things I really like about this match would be uh, that might tip it from – I'm on the board of very good to great. The things that might tip it to great for me are, first, like you mentioned, the crowd. Like, I was shocked, too, how loud they got for Delirious and your falls at the end. Like, I kept – I was, like, almost shouting at my, like, laptop screen, like, you can't really think he has a chance to win. But they were popping like they thought he had a chance to win. Either So either they were just really into Delirious or – they really did make them believe. Like either way, they were popping surprisingly loud for those delirious near falls, and um, and then the the part of the end. I love the small package at the end. This is, I believe, the first time Danielson wins with the small package. Yeah, and, and, I then, love and then, the then I think shortly thereafter he dubs himself Mister Small Package. 
Yeah, and, and I love the I, – first of all, it's classic Danielson. We already have like 18 finishers to, to do another one and to make it the small package and and to get it over. And I love the context of in this match where you described it great in your play-by-play, where Delirious is finally making a comeback and it feels like he's really got Danielson on the ropes. And the, if there's such a thing as a desperation small package other than me and my, my private life, um, that's basically what this – like this small package was like, it feels like Danielson's like screwed. Like Delirious is really hitting him now. And if he doesn't like quickly catch him off guard, like this is his last chance to win because he like all the momentum has gone away from him. And I love like, to me, that's what a small package is supposed to be. It's supposed to be something that just like comes out of nowhere and shocks you. But it kind of has this, like you believe that small package by the nature of it being such a weird move where you tie your opponent in a knot, like you could catch an opponent off guard and win even when things are going at, not your way all of a sudden. And, um, yeah, I, I, uh, I really like that too. So you're making this fun, match sound pretty you know, great to me, Trevor. <laughs> yeah. See, I mean, the, the, the part, like it's, it's like nothing about this match is bad. Like the high points are really high, but then the, 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 the other parts of it are just very good. To, I, I don't know. I'm on the fence. I, I, I can be a hard marker, but also, um, Matt, you, you talked about the stuff in the comment, the crowd, and some of it I picked up, some of it I didn't. But I don't know if you noticed this. This is one of the most – this comment dates um, – it really dates the show like nothing else. There During Danielson's entrance, did you hear a fan shout at Brian Danielson, I want a fucking MySpace comment, bitch. Like, yeah, yeah. Every time, every time the they more. mention MySpace in ROH in 2006, it just gives me the 2006 f- warm and fuzzies all over. <laughs> I thought, um, I thought I thought you were going to say that they were going to yell something about like someone was going to start singing like you had a bad day you taking one day. Cause, uh, <laughs> that that reminds me of 2006 right there. I'm surprised you can pull like a specific song out of a given year because I I can't for the life of me do that with like anything. So uh, That's I want one, wanna, one I, thing I've I always been pretty good that. at is like years that things happened. Like like if someone says like when did this happen I, I could usually pinpoint the year and and if i can't i can get it within like one or two wow well for people that run trivia shows matt has just laid down a huge gauntlet but uh (laughs) the observer someone in the live report to the observer says wrote to dave and dave based on that live report wrote that danielson deletion was said to be good but not great and then his only comment was danielson and the crowd were heckling each other so uh and then uh, the torch got uh, after the show got a comment from Gabe randomly just about Delirious. Uh, the torch wrote regarding Delirious's recent push and title matches with Brian Danielson. Gabe Sapolsky says Delirious has been ready for a push for a long time, and now he is getting one and he is running with the ball. I love these. Sometimes he would get these in the torch, where the torch would just like ask Gabe about something, and he would give like the most generic answer, and they would just print it like just like. He's like, you ask, like, what do you think about this wrestler you're pushing? Like, what do you think Gabe's going to say? He's going to be like, yeah, this wrestler's really good, and he's doing a good job. Like, you were always going to get that. It's kind of adorable. And then uh, next we get an ad for Ring of Honor Straight Shoot and Shoot interview series. Then it's intermission. 
and Gary Michael Capetta is backstage with Julius Smokes. He asks Julius Smokes, what's going on between Homicide and Ring of Honor? And Smokes says, ROH is a company that has bamboozled and hoodwinked them. And at this point, Samoa Joe walks in, and uh, Julius Smokes gives Joe this great side-eye facial expression, like he's kind of scared, kind of like, oh, shit. That, that might be the photo for this episode. Um, Joe asks Smokes, What's really hood? And Joe says, there's a war going on and they need warriors. He says, "If you, are you guys men or mice? Are you dogs or are you pussies? And then he just walks away and smokes at this point goes, hmm, a lot, like basically rubbing his chin. And he says, I like Joe's style. I'm going to talk to Homicide on, on this and we're going to see what's hood. And like, this is the most, I like this. This is also like the most acting that's ever been required of smokes. This requires him to go through like an emotional change or he has to be like very much like fuck ring of honor. And then Joe just says a few comments. He's like, hmm, I've considered your point, Joe. You, you know what? You've, if you've swayed me. Yeah, it's just very interesting. He's like, hmm, I'm intrigued by your dogs or pussies conundrum. <laughs> like, it's, <laughs> it's such a weird thing to, like, stroke your chin at, but it works for these two characters. I mean, this isn't Shakespeare, but, like, is character work for Ring of Honor goes? Like, I, mean, I guess it gives you a little bit of a, a, a narrative arc, not to get too high and mighty in the sense of, the first part of the show, you know, is all about people like Homicide, you know, help Ring of Honor because, you know, because you love Ring of Honor and the fans want you to do it and we want you to do it. All these different wrestlers and authority figures want you to do it and Homicide doesn't care about it. But if you basically just appeal to Homicide's like machismo, if you basically say, are you a pussy? Apparently that's what gets Homicide on your side. You're just basically saying, I dare you. You know, you're you're a wimp if you don't do this. Really? You, you're saying, you're saying it's not Shakespeare? You don't remember that scene from Henry V? When they were like, art thou dogs or art thou pussies? <laughs> <laughs> Boy, that's just like a dumb joke right there by me. <laughs> I I want just I just want Julius Smokes and like Macbeth now or something. Well, um, I think you I think you would get real into Christopher, it. Christopher <laughs> I would get real into it, Matt. Um Next up, we have Christopher Daniels defeating Matt Seidel via pinfall in 14 minutes, 52 seconds using a cradle. This is uh, their third match of Ring of Honor in this year, but it won't be their last. There's going to be a fourth coming up. Uh, the story behind this match is this is the uh, Matt Seidel's last match of Ring of Honor for like, a couple months because he's going on a big, long extended tour with Dragon Gate. And the story Dave Prezak says on commentary is – Ring of Honor said, hey, Seidel, since you're leaving, we'll let you book, you know, whatever you want. You know, who do you want to wrestle on the, since you're going to be gone for a couple of months? And Seidel, having just recently lost twice to Daniels, is like, you know what? I want another crack at Daniels. So this is why we're getting the third shot here. Um, I actually think I might be crazy. I have a feeling that people might disagree with me on this. I think this is actually my favorite of their three matches so far. Um, it's mid-tempo, but apart from a bit of a rest period doing, during like maybe – two-thirds of the way through the match where they do a little bit of submission and stuff. This is mostly these two guys, particularly Seidel, like, pulling out just a lot of fun offensive moves. Like, it, it, in terms of the just um, dumb, I enjoy moves. I like when wrestlers do fun things with their bodies. I This was my most fun of the three matches they've had so far. Daniels even, like, breaks out a dive to the floor. I love when Daniels does the military press where he military press is side off and then just chucks into the turnbuckles and then he immediately follows that up with a Samoan drop. I just, in terms of just pure action, I like this match the best of their trilogy. Um, like the last match, the Delirious Danielson match, there's also a couple of isolated moments that do some nice storytelling, and I wish there were more of them because there are parts of the match I really like. Like, um, 
Seidel rushes Daniels right at the bell, like not before the bell, but as soon as the bell starts, he's just attacking it because, you know, he's really showing like I really want to beat this guy. I've lost to him twice. I've really got an urgency. He's almost got a bit of a mean streak to start off with. Daniels, meanwhile, he has a couple of moments where he gets like openly frustrated at two counts. Like he's kind of trying to show this story of like he's getting tougher to beat. Like why can't why can't I beat this guy? Well, you know, he should be going down by now. And then they end the match similar to the last match where Seidel's totally controlling the action and Daniels wins out of nowhere. Except this time, Seidel counters an attempt to do Daniels' own finisher, the Angels' wing. So you could argue, you know, is Daniels getting at Seidel's head? And then Daniels just reverses it into a cradle for the flash pin. So, it's it, again, I feel like that kind of abrupt win works better this time because it's kind of referencing the last time. So those points I liked. I would have liked, again, if this match had even more of those bits in it, I would have loved it because I really like those moments that kind of just give it a bit more of a story and a unique flavor to this match over the other matches. And uh, overall, though, I, I enjoy the match. Like, it's not an amazing match, but I think it's a pretty good match. I, I was uh, kind of surprised because I wasn't the world's biggest fan of the first two matches. I think you liked them both more than me. So by uh, the nature of life, I expect you to like this match less than I liked it. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I did like those other two more than you, and thus I like this match the least of those three um, matches. <laughs> I um, well, for one thing, the crowd was pretty quiet here, which always makes a difference. I think they were tired after intermission. A lot of people weren't back at their seats, if I remember correctly, at the beginning. Um, so the story they were telling really, to me, came out more near the end, where he was like, you know, Styles was blocking a lot of um, uh, Daniel's big moves. He blocked an iconoclasm. Um, and shoved off a Rana attempt and uh, uh, lands on his feet after a military press and flips out of a Uranagi attempt. So, like, they were doing all these big things where Seidel was just stymieing Daniel's big moves at the end, um, like he was finally going to overcome it. But I think building up to it, they didn't do a great job to the point where, like, so the crowd wasn't really as into those big moments as they were hoping they would have been. I think there was just like too much slow Seidel offense in the middle of the match. You know, he was doing the seated abdominal stretch, um, things like that. I feel like if they had focused more on Danielson working over the back and then Seidel making the big comeback near the end, I think it would have done a, been a little bit better because they do, they do some of that back work stuff, but I just think like they, they don't go to it enough. Um, but you know, like I said, they're still really good wrestlers, and so they they and they're you know physically, um, you know, uh, on point. So it's still a solid match, but I just didn't work for me as much as um, as the first two. I think just the pace was just a little bit too slow for me to get as much into the ending as I would have liked. And uh, another thing that did not make the DVD, uh, uh, again, from Craig Chornomass, he wrote in his live report, after the match, Daniels asked Seidel if he would now stop challenging him. Seidel said he might challenge one more time after he gets back from Japan. Crowd cheered both men after the match. So, yeah, that doesn't make the DVD, but that does, unlike the other thing they edited off, this does happen. They do have a fourth Seidel-Daniels match with Seidel returns from Japan. So Let's see, let's see how they maybe do Maybe just cutting one. it for time. Pardon me? I just said, let's see how they do in that fourth match. Yeah, we'll see. Um, maybe that'll be the one we finally agree on. Um, Ring of Honor tag team title match next. 
generation next of Austin Aries and Roderick Strong successfully defend their titles when they defeat the Briscoes of Jay Briscoe and Mark Briscoe in 19 minutes, 29 seconds when Aries pinned Mark with a roll-up, obviously. It's kind of weird, you know? I mean, this always happens when someone passes away. I'm sure it'll get more normal within a few shows, but it's always weird when someone passes away that we have to talk about them and watch them right afterwards. But what did you think about this match, Matt? Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, it, it is, it is weird, but like, you know, just re- you review the match as it is. Um, so, yeah, I was, um, this is definitely a match where you could very clearly see they were saving a lot for the first, I mean, for, for later matches. And, you know, I think that, that is borne out because they have a match in the UK, uh, Unified, which to me is one of the prototypes of the, what becomes the ROH tag team style or, you know, American tag team style over the, you know, the next, you know, however many years, um, where it's just, yeah, I mean, it's an epic, super memorable match. This is that they're not doing that here. And I was actually surprised by how quiet the match was. I mean, the crowd was at the start and they definitely worked slow at the beginning. You know, they Aries and Strong take turns working on Mark's arm. Then Mark and Jay work on Roderick. You know, they, 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 they're on the mat a lot early. Um, you know, it's, it's, it just made me think like you never see a match where two athletic teams like this start so slowly nowadays. Like that just, just doesn't happen. Right. Like, you know, like, like they, they would have mm-hmm. two teams that could just go so balls to the wall and they just, they just don't. They just, they just go real slow at the beginning. You just don't, you just don't get that nowadays. Um, but they do a lot of signature spots. The the momentum goes back and forth. There's not a ton of rhyme or reason. Everything looks good. You know, there's a there's a cool spot where Aries and Strong are on the apron and Mark is in the ring. And Gen Next both grab the top rope and spring Mark over to the floor before and then Aries immediately hits Mark with the heat seeking missile to pick things up a bit. Um so Generation X gets the first somewhat extended control sequence. They hit the heart attack clothesline on Mark. Um, you know, they, things continue to be slow. They continue to cut Mark off from Jay. Um, and then there's a one really good spot where, um, they're working over Mark and Aries does his instant replay, you know, back roll, uh, rolling over Mark's head in the process, which I don't think he meant to do. Um, and <laughs> Jay hits him in the back as he leans on the ropes, which allows Mark to tag him in. And I really like that spot because Aries cockiness cost the team total control of the match. Um, so that wasn't a hot tag, but Jay is now in control and they cut off Aries from, from strong. Um, they do in the assisted abdominal stretch, you know, cause remember the Briscoes are still heels here. Um, they kill Aries with a double shoulder, shoulder, the shoulder tackle. Um, and that, this is when the match I think becomes the most entertaining that it's been so far. They, Jay kicks out of a sunset flip and hits a hard Aries clothesline before tagging in Mark, um, Jay hits a nice boot to the to the head on Aries from the apron, which allows Mark to hit an inside out double stomp. Um, they, uh, you know, they, Strong gets a gets a hot tag after Aries uh, knocks Jay off the top rope from a superplex position and hits a missile drop kick, and then just like rolls and and hits uh, and tags Rod again. And Strong's hot tag is is very good. He's a very good hot tag guy at this point. He even ends up getting Jay to clothesline Mark and hits a. Really good sick kick on Mark. It's a fun near fall out of that. Um, kicks out of Mark's 
Northern Light Suplex, and Jay immediately follows with a top rope leg drop for another two count with Mark covering. Um, and the Briscoes do their uh, their backbreaker springboard knee drop over the knee combo, but Aries breaks that up. Aries hits the shin breaker and back suplexes Jay into Mark. Um, they do the chop brain buster on Mark for a two count. Strong hits the fireman's carry gut buster with Aries following with the roaring forearm. And then Aries goes up top. Mark shoves him to the floor. And the Briscoes hit the spike Jay driller on Strong. But Aries comes in and O'Connor rolls Mark and gets the flash pin because Aries and Mark were actually the legal guys. So even though Jay was covering Strong, uh, the ref wasn't counting that. Um, there were other near falls, I'm pretty sure, where Sinclair was not paying attention to the legal man. So I think that seems to kind of take the finish down a bit. But other than that, it was clever. It was just like a, it felt like a very formula tag match, which is not bad. It's actually sometimes a good thing. And the finish was really good. So I, like the last maybe five minutes and the crowd was getting really into it by the end. So I think, you know, you were talking about why they're so hot for that last match. They were like waking up a lot by the end of this one. Um, but it took a while to get going and I was surprised by how slow it was early. So in the end, I thought it was just like a good match. And, you know, mm-hmm. I think my, when I was finally expecting these two to wrestle, I thought it would be an off the charts great match. It wasn't that. They do eventually have some off-the-charts great matches, though, so never fear. Yeah, your thoughts, You, you. this is one of those reviews where you said a lot of the things I literally like wrote down my notes like almost word for word. You, I, I feel basically exactly how you felt. Uh, this was disappointing me, and it, that kind of made me mad because I was like thinking the last couple of days, like, shit, like, you know. Jay Briscoe died in the first Briscoe's match, you know, one of the more consistent wrestlers I've ever seen. And the first match, you know, we have to review after he passes is a match where I'm going to say, oh, it's disappointing. But it's like then I start to realize, like, my review of this match, I was like, this is disappointing. It's still like stronger. It's still like three and a half stars. And I was like, well, that's a test of how good these guys are. Or like to me, disappointing. It's still, like even you, you just said you were kind of, you know, let, expecting great. But even you said, oh, this is still just a good match. Like for a lot of wrestlers in, in the world. They'd be happy with a match of this quality, probably. That's as fundamentally sound, has some neat spots in it. And they and, and they get, and they get, a, and they get a pretty cr- quiet crowd and heat them real up by the end. So that's a, that's a testament also. Yeah. And, and it says something that, you know, what we're disappointed by is still something we'd both call good. Like I'd still give three and a half stars to like, just as a, I don't always do stars, but as like a, just a rough guideline, like, you know, that's the floor for these guys. It feels like at this point, and you just expect because these two teams are so good that you would have something great. But I think it's my theory is what your theory is, which is they were holding back. You mentioned in the UK, they have a great match. I, I don't remember how this match is. We'll find out soon, but they literally have a rematch on the very next show. So clearly they had to have been thinking we're going to wrestle again, not just any time in the future, but the next show. So let's, let's not burn everything. And I also completely agree this felt very formula, you know, they had, you know, both sides kind of had a, a long beatdown sequence or a fairly long beatdown sequence. And then they heat up for the last few minutes. And I just felt like the work was good, but it was just missing that, that spark, you know, that, 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 you know, it, it felt like people like talented people not showing all their cards, you know, and I feel like 
it really stands out with especially a team like the Briscoes. But I think Aries is strong too. I think more than most people on the roster, these are four guys that at this point in their careers, I mean, and for the Briscoes basically their whole careers, they usually didn't like hold back. You know, they didn't take too many nights off. So when they do hold back a little bit, in this case for a reason, it really stands out because you go, wow, like I'm just expecting great every time. I'm expecting to go 100% every time. Well, now when, I, when, I, when we say hold I, back, I, like we don't mean hold back their effort. We just mean like they leave stuff on the table, like as far as stuff to do. You know, like they're still working their butts off here and like, like you know, laying it in yeah. and like just like, you know, they're not like being lazy here. They're just, they're saving a lot. Yeah, like they're, they're, when you look at these guys, like there's a match in the in your mind you know they can have, and you can just see th- that they're not doing everything that they can do. It's not like you're expecting them to do something they can't do. They're going to prove that they can do it in short order. Yeah, do you remember? But, the, do you remember the UK and, match? Uh, a, a bit. Um, well, you're in for yeah, a treat. I don't remember. <laughs> I don't remember. Yeah, I mean, I, I am sure I am. I mean, obviously on those UK shows, my memory just goes to Nigel Danielson over and over again because that's a really special match to me. But I, yeah, I can't wait to revisit those. Um, but yeah, and that also, by the way, that's a common wrestling philosophy. That, like, I remember the CM Punk Samoa Joe Ring of Honor shooter interview that we referenced a lot a couple years ago when we covered 2004 shows. And, you know, I, I believe Punk, and, I think it was Punk who said, like, you ne- he says, if you know, if you're wrestling someone for the first time, he says, you never do everything you can do in your first match together because there's always going to be rematches. Like that's a very common wrestling thought of the idea of if you think you're going to wrestle this guy again multiple times down the line, like the first match should not you be doing every idea you have, everything you're capable of. No, that's not to say to have a bad match or do low effort. And like you just said, I, that's not what these guys did here. But you don't do everything. You, you you don't go your biggest match first. I mean, I think we just had a. Dave Meltzer said after that Kenny Omega match, Will Os- Kenny Omega versus Will Osprey match at New Japan at the Tokyo Dome that people raved about. He said he was told by those guys afterwards that like, oh, like we're we were actually holding back in this match because we think we're going to wrestle each other again. So that's a, a a common wrestling philosophy. But um, the highlights I think are the highlights you kind of mentioned, like that bit where Mark's on the on the apron and he gets elbowed by both guys, and then like they pull him over, he takes that big bump to the floor. You know, I liked when uh, Aries did the knee breaker toss suplex, but he tossed one briscoe. I thought those were cool. And like you said, the ending was really – I get that the ending is made to build up controversy for an immediate rematch on the next show. But at the same time, like you said, the big problem with Ring of Honor, we've talked about this a lot. They pay attention to who's the legal man so sporadically, and it seems like only when they really – when it serves the story at this point – that it, yeah, it comes off as really dumb because it's like you're not consistent with this. So why is this supposed to be so controversial? Like we have to go hard and fast by this legal man ruling, but you, you, you're not. I'm sure we can find other examples if we went back and watched other matches on this show. Um, it's just well, like the uh, like the the disqualifications where you're allowed to use chairs, whatever, almost all the time, except when for some storyline reason there needs to be a disqualification. And there was a couple of things here. Again, it was this kind of like the theme of the, of the show for me, like, like things that were could have been cool, but you only see a little bit of them. Like Aries is selling his arm from getting losing to a submission to a Jay Briscoe on the last show the night before, but he, he only sells it like a little bit and they don't really focus on it. And, you know, stuff like that, like, you know, you could have made without having to go all out, done an interesting story about that. 
but they don't really, uh, you know, go, go into that. And the Briscoes, you know, like they, like you said, they were still kind of heels. They only cheat a very little bit in this match. Like, again, you could have leaned heavier into that to try and give this match some color, but it's like a lot of matches on the show throw out some interesting ideas, but they just throw out them. They sprinkle them instead of really giving you a big taste of them. Um, still a good match. A couple of notes I want to mention. These are the things that I got to kick out. Uh, the PW, not to pick on Craig Charno Mass, who I used his live report notes for the show and, you know, some good notes, but he wrote here in the PW Torch live report of this match. He wrote on this match a little short, but solid. This match was almost 20 minutes long. Like, I don't, I don't know what he was expecting here. Um, and then, the, Matt, did you notice this? Some fans during this match were uh, probably near the start were trying to start a new fucking champs chant, and then some other fans tried to start, I swear to God, a same fucking champs chant. Like, <laughs> this is just a funny thing to chant. Same fucking champs. Like, in support. Like, they weren't doing yeah, that. I don't yes, think they were, they were, joke, they were fans they were of like, strong you know, Yes, I get it. It's, yeah, so, it is definitely a weird chant, yes. It's like the positive version of the same old shit. Like, we want the same thing, more of the same. Like, you know, keep giving us what we're used to, status quo. And, I um, think status quo would be a so great chant. <laughs> I, want a, I want a status quo chant. Uh, you know, after every great show, that should be the chant. You know, just keep doing what you're doing, status quo. Plus, it's a fun word, fun phrase to say. Um, after the match... Dave Prezak on commentary wonders if any of Ring of Honor's current champions will lose their titles in 2006 because they're all so dominant. Uh, spoiler, they all do. Um, he says he says at this point they're signing off because the Samoa Joe Necro Butcher match that's coming next is likely to be explosive. So, you know, they got to get out of here. They'll talk to you again at the next show, Destiny, entitled Destiny. Um, Mark, in fact, the rest of the show, we do not get commentary, so that they hold to that. Uh, Mark Briscoe gets into an intense stare down with a fan who tells him he sucks. And then Aries cuts a promo into the Hell and Hell cam. And I will note, this might have been the fourth wrestler on the show. I only started cam when it got late. That, that cut a promo into the, the second heart, the, uh, fan, the ringside handheld cam that they don't use, that they just use as a backup that they never actually use. Seidel did it, he did it, and I think one or two other wrestlers made comments into them. Like, this was just a night where everyone picked the wrong camera, unfortunately. Um, next we go backstage where we find Lacey. She says she just got a progress report on Jimmy Jacobs, who's not working for Ring of Honor this weekend, and it sounds like he's doing great. He's got to come back more aggressive, and he's ready to win more matches. Lacey says she's been doing some business herself. Check out her new clothing line, which, of course, is just an excuse for the camera to pan up and down over her entire body, which it does basically every promo at this point. Lacey says when Jimmy comes back, all the victories he gets are just going to make Lacey's Angels more and more money, and her clothing is just going to get better and better. Lacey's Angels, huh? Lacey's Angels, that 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 group that exists, Lacey's Angels. <laughs> well, that's why I told you like a show or two ago. Where I was going like that thing where she was like, you know, if you don't win this match, I'm going to kick you out of Lacey's Angels. I was like, well, without Lacey's <laughs> Angels, without Jimmy Jacobs at this point, Lacey's Angels is just Lacey. There's yes. no Angels at all. Um, be, it would it would be pretty funny though so, if she if she was just, it was just her and she was like, I'm here representing Lacey's Angels, and it was literally just herself. <laughs> Um, so next up we have what is supposed to be, it was announced as, this was supposed to be your main event, it was supposed to be Samoa Joe versus the Necro Butcher. Instead, what we get is Adam Pierce, BJ Whitmer, and Samoa Joe versus Chris Hero, Claudio Castagnoli, and Necro Butcher, and it goes to a no contest in 1339. I guess you could call it that. Really, 
you could call it also you could also call it a handicap tag with Joe not involved. This is what Cage Match tries to wreck. It, it it tries to say, well, this is what the match was. But I'll describe what happens. You can decide for yourself how to how, how to categorize this. Um, so it's supposed to be. Samoa Joe versus Necro. Necro makes his entrance from the crowd along with CCW ref Bryce Remsburg. So I, I continue to like that they do that. You know, you know, the CCW guys can't come from the back. You know, they're not welcome back there. Uh, Necro immediately takes out ring announcer Bobby Cruz with a punch, which I can't recall any other time so far in, in history that Bobby Cruz has been involved in like an angle like this. You know, he, he takes a punch here. Um, Samoa Joe's music hits at this point. Out he comes. Um, Joe and Necro have a stare down, and Necro takes out the Ring of Honor ref. Joe knees Bryce Remsburg, and he tries to throw him over the top rope, but Bryce doesn't get over the top rope at all. He just bounces off of it. So Joe has to do it again and throw him over a different side of the ring. It works on the second attempt. Uh, Joe and Necro start brawling. The bell rings, and I noted the the difference in heat for this and everything else on the show is staggering. At this, it, It's just nuclear heat for this match. At one point on the outside, Joe has – they brawl for a couple minutes. At one point, Joe has the fans hold Necro by the arms as he delivers an Ole kick, which was really cool. Uh, Joe goes to hit a second when Chris Hero attacks him. He pops out of the crowd. Joe eventually takes both – takes out both Hero and Necro and shouts, Ring of fucking honor. And then Claudio Castagnoli wearing a plaid jacket that looks like – something don cherry would have worn that's for my canadian listeners it really does um he nails joe with a crazy unprotected chair shot to the head looked absolutely brutal uh the three ccw guys look to beat down joe but almost immediately adam pierce and bj whitmer come out as staffers help joe to the back and at this point what we get is basically a three-on-two handicap match so um this was a very fun brawl Joe does not get involved for the rest of the night. He, he's gone. So Joe's ring time for the show is basically, I would say, three minutes, maybe, maybe five. But really, against him and Necro, probably two or three minutes. I thought this was what we ended up getting was a very fun brawl, one of the better CCW Ring of Honor brawls of the feud, although not at the level of the 100th show. That was like a special moment. The most, this is the most the crowd's been into anything by far, like I said before. I'm still bummed by the bait and switch. Um, I don't know what the circumstances behind this are. I know Joe had a big match on the TNA pay-per-view the next night, some tag where he was in the middle of his Scott Steiner feud. I saw some live report that was saying that they heard Joe was, you know, working hurt around this time. We know he didn't work the show before other than that short match against Apocalypse. So maybe this was a weekend where Joe was just, you know, hurting and they were trying to do it right by him. I still would have been pissed if I was a fan, even with what we ended up getting. That we they tease Joe Necro, which is a huge dream match. You know, Joe Necro won in IWA, IWA Mid South. You know, one of the special matches of that era. A match, you know, I think is fantastic. And the first few minutes of this looked like it was on its way to being really great too, and the fans were going nuts for it. And you don't get it. And you, in fact, in Ring of Honor, you end up never getting it. This is the cl- and in fact. This is not the first time they've even done this bait and switch because Matt, wasn't there a show a few shows ago where, where like Joe and Necro start brawling one on one and then it becomes a like crazy tag or six man and Joe gets carted to the back on that one early on and doesn't come back. But, like they've done this trick before even where they give you a little taste of Joe Necro and then Joe's just gone. I, I obviously get what you're saying, but I don't think anyone in that crowd was pissed. <laughs> Like because no, we'll of, get to by the end of the night because like, of what they did instead. Like I remember thinking this. Like I remember after the show, I was like, oh, I guess that was a bait and switch. But like, come on, <laughs> like I, I, 
I, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll get to it. But yeah, I mean, what they the three minutes they did was awesome. I do wish we could have seen more, but like, there was no way for me to be angry at at ROH after this. It was just it no. was just wasn't going to happen. Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll yeah, we will definitely. I, One I of the best bait and switches of all part. time. But 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 it did stick in my craw a little just because you know why I think it does more is because we never get it now. Like it was one of those things where if it was a bait and switch here and then they 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 came back and certainly they had opportunities to do this again. You know, Joe and Necro were in this in Ring of Honor later on together. But so they Joe never just wasn't going to do these like these heavy brawling matches in ROH anymore. Like he he get he he gets sent out early in the Cage of Death too. Like it just he just wasn't going to do it. Like it just it just was not going to happen. He yeah, just, it, was, um, it, it was just obviously too much of a risk for him with TNA. To me, getting a, a Ring of Honor version of Joe versus Necro is one of those great "what if" Ring of Honor matches that was teased that we never got. I would rank that right up there, you know, with Low Key and Joe to you know the rematch that they teased at some point we never got, or also I, I would throw in their Homicide and Low Key in late two thousand three, which you Joe know, versus Low Hero Key in ROH two it. is one of those is one of those things we never got that would have been great during this feud, and Joe versus Kenta yeah. one on one. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. Joe versus Canada is another great one where you know they just couldn't. They, we get a three way, but we don't get the singles. So yeah, about the brawl again. I really liked it. I mean, it, it's another one of those brawls. I felt like they were starting to get stale, and this one it broke through that staleness. I thought it was fresh and exciting enough that it, I, I was into it. Um, you know, Claudio gets whipped into the hockey boards. I always like that. He takes a Adam Pierce pile driver on the floor. I love there's a moment where Chris Hero teases he's going to throw a chair shot on Whitmer, and then he drops a chair at the last second and just instantly applies a cravat instead. I, I, you know, I, that's so, I love Hero as the troll like that. Um, Necro takes one of the worst power bombs I've ever seen on two open back-to-back chairs. He barely gets above the top of the chairs. He might not have even gotten above the top of the chairs. And I think he, he that happened to, like a couple shows ago too. Like for some reason, Necro just can't get up a power bomb. Yet that's like a signature bump of his is taking a power bomb on two chairs, but he can't get up for them. But it looks ugly in a good way, in a way. Um. Matt, what do you think about this, up to this point? Obviously, we're building to something bigger, but what do you think about this segment? Um, I think Joe vs. Necro, like, was there the action there was as good as the stuff on that IWA match. It uh, it, it obviously was just um, um, you know three minutes, but like it was like fantastic. I think something else that disappointed me is that it, we we were like it it looked like we were on our way to another match of that level. Yeah, I mean. It was yeah spectacular stuff. Um, the I so I thought that the BJ and Pierce versus Necro Hero and Claudio thing was was solid, but I think I liked it less than you because it did feel more like more of the same. And like I think I would have, but the crowd was so hot for it. I think I would have liked it better if it was just a little bit shorter. That's that part of this. Like maybe if they shave like three minutes off of it. I would have liked it a lot more, but I thought it maybe dragged on a little bit. I did notice during that whole spot that um, as Claudio and Pierce are fighting in the crowd, we see young Rhett Titus holding the crowd at bay. So that was a, a fun <laughs> sighting. And the other thing is you could see like as Pierce and Claudio are fighting in the crowd, you could see like behind them, like in the ring, Necro's just standing there hitting himself in the head with a chair, <laughs> which just – I. 
I really enjoyed that. Um, the other thing that I noticed, like there was like that whole shtick that Hero did where he, he teased hitting Whitmer with a chair, but then dropped it and grabbed a cravat. And I, I was just thinking, what would Jim Cornette have said about this ultra violence from CZW, this <laughs> mud show stuff where they're throwing down chairs and grabbing cravats? It was just, it's just funny, like to think like just how like not in line with what Cornette says the guys that they're actually using are. But other than that, yeah, it was good, but it was just, I just thought too long. And uh, so it comes to an end where um, Claudio is about to powerbomb Whitmer off the top turnbuckle onto Adam Pierce, who is lying on a table on the floor. When the lights go out, Homicide's music hits. Homicide makes his way to the ring and teases joining t- Team CZW before he attacks them to a huge, absolutely huge crowd pop. Pierce and Whitmer brawl with Hero and Claudio to the back, so that leaves Homicide and Necro completely alone in the ring. Uh, Ray of Honor ref Todd Sinclair jumps in the ring. He signals for the bell, and we got an impromptu main event. So, yeah, they're going to what Matt said. You know, we got a bait and switch, but the thing that makes up for it is we got Homicide versus Necro, which I looked on, according to K-Judge, had never happened before. And we get, you know, a complete first-time dream match unannounced, you know, is is our new main event. Homicide defeats Necro Butcher via pinfall in 10 minutes, 5 seconds after he hit a lariat. And, uh, Matt, this was, uh, this, this was fucking insane. Yeah, I mean, I mean that, that, that moment where Homicide comes out, like, people remember the cage of death where Homicide comes out and, like, joins Team ROH, but, like, to me, like, even though cage of death was, like, you know, obviously a much more epic match, this was the better moment. Like, this was the moment that I'll always remember. I was at both of those shows. This was the, the you know, this was the big one. Like, this, this, like, this, because, like, that was, like, doubling down, you know? Homicide, we'll get, we'll see as we go through the next few shows. Homicide joins ROH here, but then he gets disenchanted with it again. And, but, like, you knew Homicide was going to join Team ROH there. You didn't know that that was going to happen on this show. This was a total surprise on this show. This show wasn't called Ring of Homicide in advance. You know, this was named after the fact. So the crowd was just, like, so excited, elated to see this happen. And honestly, if Homicide had just joined the ROH and, like, run the CZW guys off, that would have been enough for this crowd on this night. But instead, they give you a full, complete match between Homicide and Negro Butcher Everyone was just, like, losing their minds. They were like, seriously? Like, this is what we're going to get this? Like, what? So, like, that's why the bait and switch didn't really bother too many people very much. Because, it's like, we got, I think in most of our minds, more than we paid for. Um, and so, yeah, so this is one of those matches where it's, like, just all big moments. That's the whole match. There's really nothing but big moments. Um, they go They go right to the floor. Um, homicide rips one of the guardrail signs, chucks it into the ring. He necro uh, comes back with his like chair, holding the chair, body slam. They brawl in the crowd. Um, you know, homicide suplexes necro on a bunch of chairs, starts throwing chairs on top of him. Necro's bleeding. Homicide throws him back in the ring, and this is when we get, I would say, the biggest chair ride of all time. Like the crowd throws so many chairs on top of necro butcher that. We see, first of all, we see the security guy, Zach, just like motioning to, toward the hard camera, like, stop, stop, stop. We overhear a fan in the crowd or, or somebody's like, overhear say, oh, shit, it hit me in the back of the head. And somebody else goes, you, you all right? And then we get Homicide getting on the mic and he's like, all right. Um, this guy's, this guy's fucked up enough already. We get the deal. There's too many chairs in the ring in order to finally get them to stop. Like, to the point where, like, 
I, at the time, like I was good, I was there, but I was like behind all the chairs, so like I wasn't in the way. But like watching back, I was, I'm like, man, I wonder if like Homicide was like worried about Necro Butcher at this point. Like he's like, is he alive I'm under all think- that? Like there were a lot. Like it felt like almost every chair in that building was thrown into the ring. Like it was insane. Like so much more than the other two that we saw in ROH. So much more. I, I. It was like I don't know. Am, am I crazy? Like it was like scary. No, how many chairs? I I started to think that like um, did Hamas only get on the mic because someone told him to tell? Because like you mentioned, the security guy at some point, like halfway through the chair throwing, that security guy, he's like not. Ha- you can tell he's pissed, and he's emphatically yeah. doing like the throat cut, like yeah. stop this, stop telling people, stop throwing chairs, and they're not stopping, and they don't stop until homicide yeah, gets on the mic. Like, yeah. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. I don't know what if Homicide did that on his own or if someone told him to. I don't know, but it was like, I'm glad Necro Butcher was okay, and like it did. It did seem like he was relatively okay. Like as soon as he, um, you know, so Homicide just stands on the top rope. He looks down at the mountain of chairs, and he like, he just like he has to search for Necro Butcher, buried under all of them, and eventually he finds him, and just immediately, I guess he wasn't that worried because he just immediately pile drives Necro on all the chairs, and. The bell actually rings, but Necro clearly kicked out, and the crowd goes wild. Because I don't think, like, I can tell you, I don't think anyone expected Necro to kick out of that. I think we all just thought that was the match. That was it. It's over. But instead, they just do a bunch more big moves. Necro just immediately hits a tiger driver on Homicide on the chairs. Homicide kicks out. Necro goes to the top rope, so of course Homicide slams him off of it onto the chairs, then dives on him for another near fall. Um... I, I, every near fall felt just like a bonus here. We were like, really? It's not over yet? Really? Like, um, you know, and, I, at some, and I'd say in some ways this match was almost like nonsensical, but like it was so spectacular and wild that it, it doesn't matter. Like Necker does a swinging neck breaker onto the chairs. And so Homicide rolls onto the apron. They fight on the apron. A lot of the chairs are on the floor at this point. And Necro teases a Death Valley driver and then a suplex. And Homicide suplexes him off the apron to the floor onto a pile of chairs. And, like, I got to tell you, that move is insane by 2023 standards. Like, if anyone saw that move happen now, they'd be like, that's the craziest shit I've ever seen, right? Like, off the, like, suplexing off the apron to the floor onto a bunch of chairs. Like, when have you ever seen that again? Um, doesn't Necro's leg hit like the guardrail or a table on the way down shit, too? Probably. Like, like he doesn't take it smooth. Like he hits something, I think, on the way down. Too. Like it's not even, it's not safe in any in any way. Yeah, no, in totally. every way, it is dangerous. Yeah, and then so Homicide puts Necro on that table that they set up earlier that was never used. He does a big splash off the top, putting Necro through the table on the floor. Throws him back in the ring, gets another two count. The crowd chants for a cop killer, but we don't get that. But Necro, you know, Necro is, I think, too big. But he fights back with hard punches, but Homicide just kicks him, hits the lariat, gets the pin. Um, so, again, like, this was just a match that was just all big spots. Some of them made no sense because it was just, like, back and forth. Like, how is this person just even alive? Never mind, just hitting another big move. But the crowd heat, the insanity of the spots, the spectacle, the genuine emotion that was brought on by this storyline, everything that happened before it, um, after it, it was just, to me, one of the most satisfying things I was ever at in ROH history. Like, one of the most memorable. Like, when I think back to my experience going to ROH back then, this is one of the first things that comes to my mind, this whole segment. Um, it got over, like, as well as anyone could have asked for. The ROH chant is crazy. Like, 
this is just like one of the great live experiences in ROH for me. So I'm never going to decouple it from that. Like I, I just thought this was incredible. This entire, from when Joe entered to this, I just thought incredible. Yeah. And oh, I wasn't there. I watched this at home in British Columbia, Canada, young 20 something guy. And I thought it was incredible. So it, it translates. I'm sure it was not the same as being there. Although maybe, you know, the, maybe the best way to watch it, unless you were Matt Forsting in the back where you were safe would be at home where you're not getting hit with chairs. Cause one thing I want to mention, you mentioned, um, at one point you can hear someone on camera say, you know, I got hit with a chair and someone asks if they're okay. You didn't, you didn't, you met left out one thing, which is the guy responds and says, no, oh, I, I, did, okay I did miss says, that. Yeah. No. I, I missed that. Yeah. They, he actually they, says they, no on they were really like playing with fire with all these chair rides. I mean, I guess they must have figured it out because they don't do another one. I don't think, but like, they, they, I mean, like they had, they got into trouble in Chicago with people getting hit with chairs. Like, I don't know, not like serious trouble, but like people got hurt. Why would they do this again? It's crazy. Yeah. I mean, it was spectacular and amazing for the match, but like, geez, they were really being reckless. I think that's a, a microcosm of the whole match because if I was going to describe this match, it would be it was spectacular and amazing and completely irresponsible, like simultaneously. Like, like just a recap for people that you know, if you're just tuning in on this show for some reason or forget, um, yeah. To what Matt said during, I believe it was the Chicago Triple Shot, you know, the WrestleMania Triple Shot, the huge shows. I think there was a chair incident every night because the first two nights, I believe Chris Hero threw chairs. I think both nights he hit a fan. In, in the, one of those nights was that night where he hit a fan and they got so worried. I think it was a woman fan. They had to have Jack Evans come out there because she was a big Jack Evans fan and talk to her for like half an hour as a consolation. You know, one of those nights, the night where the fans are chatting like free t-shirt or free merch or something for the, the fan. Like, so th- they did it two times in a row that goes wrong and then the third night homicide and colt cabana have their huge blow off and they do the chair right there and people apparently got hit in the back of the head with chairs then and so you think after that three times it doesn't go great you know like they don't get sued but things could have gone that way you think why do they don't, they they don't, and they why don't get we know i mean i you know i guess it's possible yeah yeah i, I mean i presume Maybe people got free DVDs. I'm sure it might have cost them, you know, some free swag. I, w- I would guess, but or some more conversations with Jack Evans. But um, you know, you would also think you're just going back to the well because you just did a huge chair riot, like you know, two or three months ago. You know what, WrestleMania week a homicide match, and yet it just doesn't matter because it's fucking awesome. And same with like. You know, I, like I was saying, I was disappointed that we didn't get Joe versus uh, Necro, and I'm still a little disappointed. But you know what? By the end of this match, it just doesn't matter. And even the first few minutes of this match, they're a good brawl, but it's not like a great brawl, like on I would say on the verge of like Joe versus Necro. But it just doesn't matter because once you do that chair riot. I think the thing that's – this match just has an unforgettable electricity. It's unforgettable. Not just – the chair riot in itself is insane. It, it, I agree with you, Matt. This, if there's a crazier chair riot, I haven't seen it or can't remember it. But I think more than that is, you know, in these chair riots, you expect like – okay, the chair riot's kind of like the cherry on top. And after that, you might see one or two spots in the match ends. They wrestle like – four or five minutes after the chairs. And as you laid out in your great, you know, recap, you know, they do a bunch of moves and near falls on the chairs. Now, by the yeah, time yeah, they go say, out of the way and get back wrestle, in, when you say wrestle for four or five more minutes, they just hit a bunch of insane shit and kick out of it. That's what they do. Yeah. Yeah. And like, that's the crazy thing. And to me, from that moment on, from the chair riot 
or chair throwing, whatever on, this is just something completely special because I've, I like, it's funny. Like I knew there was more mints to go and I've seen this before. I still kind of didn't expect, like I, I can never like get prepared for like, they're just going to keep going with all these chairs. Yeah. They're going to do near falls and hit spots in, in a ring with as many chairs as you've ever seen. And then when they go on the outside in the background, you can just see the ring of our students frantically like trying to pull out all the chairs. And it just adds like it, it just emphasizes more how insane, like how many chairs are in the ring. And by the time they get back in the ring, the chairs are gone, but they still have done a whole bunch of spots with all these chairs. And it just has this magic where it feels like a special night. You're seeing something and, and it goes back to what I was saying during the first homicide match on the show where against Don and Marcos, where I feel a lot of people like, when they wrestle Necro Butcher, particularly in Ring of Honor, they let Necro do a bunch of crazy bumps, and they don't give Necro a bunch of offense. They let him throw some punches. And Homicide here is is like really generous with Necro. Like he gives him some big near falls. He you know he takes a move from Necro after on the chairs. Like he gives Necro, I think more than a lot of guys would give Necro, and it, and it works because there are like two or three near falls after the chairs where like the crowd is completely buying in that this is the finish. It's almost like the, like you were saying before, if they had just given the crowd a brawl when homicide came in and didn't have an official match between him and Necro, the crowd would have been satisfied. There's two or three near falls. I feel like in this match where it's rare. I think we had it on a different show earlier this year where it's like you very rarely guess where it's a near fall. You could almost hear the appreciation where the crowd's like, I think it was the Dragon Gate Six Man, where it's like the crowd's like, really? That isn't it? Like they're all, you can almost hear the crowd getting pumped. Like they're shocked that they're getting more. Like because you, you just there's two or three moments where any crowd would have been happy if the match had ended there, and it doesn't feel like over. It just feels like we're going to keep going. We're going to give you more. Yeah, and I can I can I can yeah, verify it, that it, is exactly how I felt. I was like, really? Like they're going to keep doing? Like thank you? Like yeah, exactly. Yeah, it is just a, a very generous match um, in that sense. Even though it's only, you look at the time, only 10 minutes, it feels, it, it does not feel slight in the, in the, in the least. It, it is, um, and the other thing we did mention with the chairs too is, or maybe you mentioned, and maybe I just got distracted, but I don't think I did. Like they show the hard cam, all the chairs being thrown, and then they cut to someone with a handheld cam right at ringside, which gives you a completely different view. He's right up against the ring apron, crouched down to try and avoid the chairs, and you're seeing all the chairs. It's like it's at that point you're just seeing it's almost like it's raining, but it's raining chairs. And then at some point you hear like a thump, and the camera like goes all digital pixelated, and I think the, the and that's right after where you hear. The guy, someone asked, like, did you get hit with a chair and are you okay? And so at the very least, the camera guy, I think, got hit with a chair and dropped his camera. And that might have been, that might have been the cameraman that we're hearing. Yeah. Which would you make know sense what? That's why a the good camera, point. That, prob- that probably is, that probably is who it was actually. Wow. That someone at ringside is probably asking the cameraman, like, are you okay? And again, it goes like, it feels, it's so reckless and so irresponsible, but, it's also awesome. Like it, it, it's an insane. You this is something you have to go out of your way to see if you haven't seen it. I mean, it is just such a spectacle at the highest degree. Um, and 
you know, Homicide, you know, he worked a short match where he did a couple of big bumps in that earlier match. You know, Necro does a whole big, long brawl right before this, and he still does a full match here, including, I didn't talk about, during that six-man or handicap brawl, whatever you want to say, Adam Pierce at one point where Necro's just lying on, like, the, the floor, um, Adam Pierce grabs a chair and he throws it at Necro, who's just lying on the floor, about as hard as I've ever seen someone throw a chair at somebody else. Like, just no regard for him. And to think he took that kind of abuse, and then he does this whole match too, it's absolutely insane. This is probably the most necro-butchery, necro-butcherist performance we've ever seen in Ring of Honor, where, like... A lot of times, I, I'm not opposed to hardcore matches. I can appreciate them at times. Um, but there are times when I'm watching hardcore guys where I feel really gross. Like, I'm feeling like I'm just watching you lose brain cells. I can see the CTE forming. Uh, you're not t- you're not really very well trained. You're just subjecting yourself to this horrible punishment. And I just feel kind of guilty and gross. And Necro at his best, and this is Necro at his best, like, I have that feeling, but then it gets overwhelmed by, like, this energy I get. Like, I feel kind of gross, but then I'm just like, no, this is too awesome. Like, it just pushes that bad feelings out of my head. I feel like this whole match, all the weirdness I feel about the chair throwing, all that, like, it just gets pushed out of my head by how amazing it is. And it, I guess it's a very I guess weird that's feeling. like what good wrestling does, right? It makes it overwhelms our feeling of guilt for what we're actually supporting here. <laughs> So in that sense, this is pro wrestling at its purest. I know some people won't think this is, you know, some people will hate this match. They they, they will say it's not even a wrestling match. But, but you know what? If, you, if, you're, way, into, if you're into the storyline and the characters, I don't think you're going to feel that way. But if you're not and you watch it out of and, context, um, yeah, maybe. <laughs> so, yeah, this is absolutely insane. A um, couple of things I wanted to ask you, Matt. First off, um, I kind of watching this and you, you touched on it to start on the review of this. Do you feel like they always knew at this point that the end game for homicide was going to be cage of death in a few, in a couple of months and stuff? Because to me, this, by the time I ended up re finished rewatching the show, this kind of felt almost like what ring of honor does sometimes during this period, which is kind of like a storyline just for a weekend because like they did with the Jimmy Jacobs lacy thing where it's like, you got to win this weekend or you're gone. And then, you know, it's just, it's just a storyline for the, for a double shot. Like here, it's like only the last two or three shows, all of a sudden they went from like zero to 60 of like, no one mentions homicide in the suit. And all of a sudden Pierce and Whitmer just have this huge boner for like homicide. We need you desperately. Everyone now, Samoa Joe, everyone's like Samoa homicide. You, you, you've got to turn the tide. And then, it, it, in a way, you could argue it's resolved at the end of the night, and then kind of going to what you say, they basically just redo it. And part of me wonders, did they always plan this whole thing out, or did this go so well that Gabe thought, why don't we just do it again? You know, why don't we just reset Homicide, and we will build it all up again for two more months from now? Um, like, yeah. I don't know. I was always under the impression that by this point, they kind of knew the end game was going to be Homicide saving the day of Cage of Death. But on the other hand, like, I mean, because like, what else could they have done at Cage of Death? What would have what would have been the other spectacular climax? I don't remember when they announced yeah, Cage I of Death, know. but I I know that they were planning for a big finale for that angle. You know, like they lost in Philly, they were going to win the next show in Philly, right? Like that was known. So if it wasn't mm-hmm. Homicide, what would it have been? That's why my gut is that they were going to go with Homicide. Maybe what they did change or add was that they were going to 
recast the doubt again. You know, as opposed to Homicide just being on the team, they were going to make it so Homicide was conflicted again. So he could come back and again surprise everybody by standing with Ring of Honor. But, you know, I guess, you know, you'd have to ask Gabe. But I, I think, again, that's a great point you made. Like, you know, they kind of get to have their cake and eat it too because they basically get to do this twice. And like you were saying, like, people remember the Cage of Death one. They don't remember this one as much. Because not yet, as many people, not as many you know, people saw it. I think that's a big part of it. Meltzer didn't review yeah, this yeah. one. Meltzer reviewed Cage of Death. I think some other sources did too that don't usually follow ROH. So while Cage of Death definitely deserves all the accolades, you know, this one got a little bit overlooked by people who weren't just completely immersed in ROH. And, uh, and yeah, and um, just, just an amaze. I, I still just... Um, and yeah, they got that huge pop for it. So they really got to do it twice and it worked both times. It didn't like lessen the other one. I don't think, um, I was looking at, uh, obviously doing all my research, trying looking at all the newsletters, whatever I get access to looking at the figure four weekly of all things, Brian Alvarez wrote this and I tried to make sense of this. I'm sure it's just misheard something from a live report or something, but Brian Alvarez wrote in the figure four weekly ring of honor on the 13th was headlined by a ring of honor versus CCW match with homicide beating necro butcher in a 40 minute wild brawl that included ECW st- ma- style match territory. He said 40 minutes, four zero. Uh, like well- if you include, yeah, I think that it probably wasn't a mishearing. I think it was probably somebody estimating how long this entire segment lasted, which obviously is not true. It wasn't, it wasn't 40 minutes, but you know, I think that's probably what was going on. I think it kind of did feel like it was really epic and long when you include Joe versus Necro and the brawl with Pierce and, uh, and Whitmer. And I also think this is another great example of a, Something again, we talked about during the Joe Punk trilogy in 2004, which is Gabe's booking philosophy, which is uh, again a philosophy other bookers have had in wrestling history, I think, which is if you have to replace a big match, you have to replace it with something even bigger. Like the, we talked about the story of Joe versus Punk 2 wasn't supposed to happen, it was just supposed to be the hour long first draw, and then the third, what turned out to be the third match at, at All Star Extravaganza, and the second one was only done because, um. Steve Carino couldn't do a scheduled match against Samoa Joe, and so Gabe was thought was like, well, if we can't give up the promised main event, we have to give you something even bigger, even though Punk and Joe were, like, initially apprehensive, like, really? We're gonna do enough, like, but and I have to feel like this was Gabe's way of, like, if I can't, for whatever reason, give you the Joe Necro match that was promised, this is the biggest thing I can possibly give you. Yes. It, and by, it, at and least by, that hits those same kind of notes. Yes. And by the way, I was just looking because I, I had a hunch this was true. I think I might be the, to the blame for that 40-minute thing because I wrote in my review that night and I wrote as in my final thoughts, I said, um, the final 45 minutes was a tremendous spectacle. <laughs> so it might have been me. <laughs> you really like the end of that uh, Briscoe stack <laughs> You were like, boy, that was a spectacle, and then it just kept on going. And, but, watch, and, no, watching, I mean, ev- and watching everyone walk out was just so, so <laughs> thrilling. So waiting in, so, the, um, waiting in the parking lot? Oh, my God, it was intense. Uh, so, yeah, after the match, the house lights go on almost immediately, like almost to the point where I was wondering if someone was angry about, like, the chair throwing. was like, get these people the fuck out of here, because it is rare you see, like, the, as soon as this match is over, boom, house lights come on. Um Julia Smokes comes to ring comes to ringside, which is also another interesting choice. They did not have Smokes like be part of this match. It was totally straight up homicide necro until the very end. Um, 
the chants turn from homicide to ROH, which sh- homicide shakes his head no to, like, don't do that. And then homicide gets on the mic and says, anytime, Holmes, welcome to the ring of homicide. So you got the title of the show right there. And uh, I think, and I think, what, you, I think what you don't get is um, Bobby Cruz announcing homicide as the winner, right? Because he says, if I remember correctly, he says, representing the winner of the match, representing ring of honor, homicide. And homicide goes, no, I did it for me. Like, I did it for me. So and that that makes me think that maybe this was a longer play because yeah, yeah even when Homicide wins, he's still yeah he's still not going like rah rah ring of honor. Well, I don't know if he ever really does that, but like he he's still here not going like you know just giving Ring of Honor a warm hug. You know he's still like well fuck them I just did this because I'm me. But um, wouldn't the show have been better if it ended with um with if it ended with him giving Bobby Cruz and as a metaphor for Ring of Honor just giving him a big warm hug. And the show was called A Warm Hug. <laughs> Would have been less awkward for us. No, that, well, naming it I, tonight. I, I, <laughs> I mean, that, that should be the end of, um, uh, you know, when best friends have their last wrestling show. It should just be called A Warm Hug. But, yes, uh, yes. Uh, Homicide poses for the crowd. They're now chanting his name again. And the show ends somewhat abruptly. Like, we get no... Yeah, you Ravar usually gives you some promos at the end. Nothing like that. They don't really linger on the moment too long, and they just kind of cut it off with Homicide Celebrates, quick cut it. And that's the end of the show. So that was Ring of Homicide. Um, Matt, uh, um, I thought the undercard was good, not great. There were some, you know, some good matches. You know, uh, Danielson, Delirious match approaching great. Tang match was a bit of disappointing. I thought, you know, overall undercard, good show. Maybe not a great show, but that final what felt like 45 minutes, what could have, you know, I don't know what it was actually 25, 30. I mean, to me, it's one of those things where that's such a special vibe. and so crazy. I almost feel like it doesn't matter what happened on the rest of the show. Like go out of your way to see that. Yeah. Well, here's what I wrote that night. Um, I said, after a somewhat lackluster show on Long Island last night, ROH made up for it. And then some tonight, fantastic show, both the main event and the world title match were super in their own ways. Pretty much every other match on the show was good, with several being very good. The final 45 minutes was a tremendous spectacle. Really, the main event was a bait-and-switch, as Joe versus Necro was the advertised main event. It never really happened. However, it seemed like every single person in attendance was was satisfied and then some with what we got instead. I know I was. It worked out incredibly well. I really can't say enough good about the show tonight. Um, watching it back all these years later, I would temper that a little bit. You know, it, I think maybe the undercard wasn't quite as good as I made it out to be that night, but I still really liked the title match. I liked the pure title match. I thought the tag title match was, was quite good, even though it was, you know, maybe disappointing. Um, the main event was so incredible, that entire segment, just like one of the greatest segments in history of ROH, like for sure, that, to me, this match is oh, this show is always going to be one of my most remembered shows. Like, just, just, I, I really, really like high on my list of most memorable experiences at ROH, and one of my most positive. I just remember I was like totally buzzing um, that night and that weekend. Like, I just couldn't wait till my next ROH show. And after how we roll, I did not expect that because that was that was a bad start <laughs> to the weekend. So, I, I really have a strong, strong, strong attachment to this show. Uh, I, re- I love it. 
And I think that's a, a, a you made a past young Matt with hopes and dreams. You made a great point in that review too about, I think that's a good point that I, we should make a little stronger here, which is like no one in that crowd seemed to be disappointed that they did not, that they got like three minutes of Samoa Joe. Like it's interesting when you watch the, the brawl, the CCW versus Ring of Honor brawl before it becomes Necro homicide. There's a moment where the crowd chants for Joe briefly, and it's almost like they kind of realize he's not coming back. And then a few minutes later, well, like a minute before Homicide ever comes out, and they're not teasing Homicide at this point, you can hear the crowd start to chant for Homicide. It's almost like they're like, I think this has happened at least once before, too. Like, it's almost like when these big CZW things happen, their first choice is Joe, and very quickly if they realize Joe isn't coming, like Homicide's their second choice. It's like, well, Joe's can't come in when we want Homicide then. And they get it, you know. They Gabe quickly correctly read what was gonna happen and gave them exactly what they want as a replacement. So They also primed them um, for it, but yeah, they promo earlier on the show, I mean, to be fair. Yeah, yeah. And this was also the first show where it really you could see Homicide being the man. Like like this was a show where at the end where the crowd's cheering for him and he's the hero standing tall where it really felt like for the first time ever, it felt like, like he was always a major player in ring of honor, but like I felt like, Oh, this is the homicide. This is the guy you can see about. We should build the rest of the year to making this guy world champ. Like this is a, a face we can build around because he is that hot at this moment. He is that triumphant at this moment. Like he's got all this momentum, but that's the end of the show. So for plugs, um, as always, through the years at gmail.com. That's T-H-R-O-H for through. Um, at Twitter, we got um, at Mayor M-G-F. M as in Matt. G as in G. Matt's a good guy. F as in Feuerstein. So that's that. <laughs> um, Trevor Dame on Twitter. M as in Matt for Dame. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, we got all that. And then next time on the show... We will be covering Destiny, which Ring of Honor returns to Connecticut, and we finally get the debut of Davy Richards. We get the immediate rematch of uh, the Briscoes and Aries and Strong, and we get Homicide against Brian Danielson, a match we've rarely seen in Ring of Honor. <laughs> um, so that should be a fun show. Uh, rest in peace, Jay Briscoe. Everyone, you know, appreciate what you have while you have it. Hug your family, hug your friends. Until next time. Have a good time. Have a great time.